This podcast is a member of the Place to Be Nation family. Visit us at placetobenation.com, the only place to be in your pop culture world. So, you're leaving. That must have been a hard decision. Honestly, it wasn't. It's funny. On my first day here, I asked Jeffords to tell me about everyone. Told me you were a great detective. But the one thing you couldn't figure out was how to grow up. Well, I think you finally figured it out. Well, thank you, sir. I couldn't have done it without you. Over the years, you've sometimes referred to me as uh, something of a father figure. Did I? I didn't realize that. But I want you to know, if I had had a son, and uh, he had turned out like you, I would be very proud of him. Thank you, sir. Wow. Wasn't expecting to get this emotional. It's not bad for an old robot, huh? Sir, did you just make a joke? I believe I did. Yes. I guess in the end, we rubbed off on each other quite a bit. Title of your sex movie. Did I do that right? It was perfect. Rest in peace, Andre Brower. An anthology about the bad, the short-lived, and the forgotten shows and events in television history. This is... It was a thing on TV. Punisher, control! Tell me before I change my mind! I give you Super Train! Episode 437, submission number 1147, Man from Atlantis. Man from Atlantis aired on the NBC television network from September 22nd, 1977 to June 6th, 1978 for 13 episodes. But if you count the four television movies, it's 17 episodes. That means that it's one more than Uncle Croc's Block, The Hudson Brothers Razzle Dazzle Show, Schooled, the number of aired episodes of Salvage One, J.J. Starbuck, Tiger King, Am I forgetting keep, something else? Keep Public going. Of science. Hey, keep going. One more. One more. I don't remember what it, the other one is. Little Bush. Oh, Little Bush. And I found another show that had 16 episodes, even though odds are we're not going to cover it because it's actually sort of beloved. Jabberjaw. But hold on. I have an idea. Any show that's 17 episodes can now be referred to as A Man from Atlantis. It's sort of like a baker's dozen. You get 16 episodes and one for free. Yeah, you get Patrick Duffy, one more. Everybody likes extra Patrick Duffy. This is just a fact of life. Just ask Victoria Principal. Here's the theme music.
Well, guys, the Aquaman is still at the theaters as we are recording this and as you are listening to it. But instead of Jason Momoa, we are getting Patrick Duffy. That's right. Bobby Ewing, Frank Lambert, the host of Bingo America, season one. But would people actually watch a TV show about a guy who's the last son of a lost civilization? Sure. Yeah, I'm thinking to myself, this is the age of Star Wars, so obviously the answer is yes. Let me note, this came from a series of television movies in 1977, and the first of which aired about two and a half months before Star Wars was theatrically released. And the thing about those TV movies, the one that aired in March basically served as the pilot for the TV series. NBC aired it, and people watched it. I mean, a lot of people watched it. It is one of the top draws of the week of March 4th, 1977, when it first aired. On the strength of that, they ordered three more movies. On the strength of those, they ordered an entire series. Or, equally plausible, they ordered two seasons, and the first season was edited into three two-hour movies. Unfortunately, the data just isn't out there. All we have is our backstory. And the backstory goes like this. An amnesiac man is washed up ashore. He looks like any other man, but with bright green eyes and webbed hands and feet. From this, we are led to believe that he is the last known inhabitant of the lost city of Atlantis. He possesses exceptional abilities, including the ability to breathe underwater and withstand extreme death pressures, as well as superhuman strength. His eyes are unusually sensitive to light, and he swims using his arms and legs in a fashion, according to Truth by Consensus Wikipedia, suggestive of an underwater butterfly stroke or a dolphin kick. The man, given the name Mark Harris by the Foundation for Oceanic Research, assists said foundation in top-secret research and exploring the depths of the ocean in a submarine called the Cetacean. Submarine is crewed by Harris, the resident doctor Elizabeth Merrill, who had nursed Mark Harris back to health, and C.W. Crawford Jr., who is basically bankrolling the whole thing. However, there's trouble in the waters, in the form of the villainous Mr. Schubert, among others. He's just the most prominent big bad. Man from Atlantis was the brainchild of American screenwriter and playwright Mayo Simon and American producer Herbert F. Solo. If that name sounds familiar, I'm sure it sounds familiar to you because, if I'm not mistaken, he was the executive in charge of production at Desilu or Paramount when they were doing Star Trek. Yes, 
Okay. According to Truth by Consensus Wikipedia, Solo oversaw the development, sales, and production of Star Trek, Mission Impossible, and Manix. So he would be working for Lucille Ball at the time, then. Correct. Mayo Simon wrote the pilot with Herbert F. Solo developing the series. So obviously, a match made in heaven. Uh, Some of Mayo Simon's early credits include Future World, the sequel, but not really, of Westworld, the original movie. Yes, and guys, you do know who is in Future World, right? Peter Fonda. Well, that's not where I'm going with this. I was like, I know Peter Fonda, Yul Brynner is in a dream sequence, which is just absolutely nuts if you think about it, because I've actually seen Future World. Alan Ludden and Betty Whitehead. Thank you! Jeez! Not joking. Oh, Peter Fonda, Blythe Danner, Yul Brynner, Alan Ludden, and Betty White. He was one of the writers behind that. So, obviously, some science fiction street cred in this premise, as is evidenced by the plot of the pilot, which he wrote, and I've got it right here. After a violent storm at sea, the inert body of a man is found on the beach near the Naval Undersea Center. Equipped with webbed hands and gills instead of lungs, he can breathe underwater, swim faster than a dolphin, and dive to depths of at least seven miles. He is nursed back to health by Dr. Elizabeth Merrill and given the name of Mark Harris. In return, Mark agrees to help the United States Navy recover a lost missing submarine carrying top military officials. Deep in the ocean, Mark discovers an enormous undersea habitat constructed by Mr. Schubert, a maniacal scientist who has gained the assistance of kidnapped scientists from various nations via mind control bracelets and plans to destroy all the nations of the world with their own nuclear weapons. So... To review, and this is a spoiler alert, it is the exact opposite of the Giggle episode of Doctor Who. So Patrick Duffy doesn't turn into another person? I can only wish. And yeah, instead of the bracelets suppressing your urge to act out, it actively encourages it. Now, hold on. Do we want to describe for Mike what happens in the regeneration sequence? Mike, are you ready for this? Okay. The toy maker, played by Neil Patrick Harris, shoots the laser that was supposed to disable a Korean satellite that's enabling a mind-controlling giggle on all television, actually anything with the screen, shoots it directly into one of the doctor's hearts, And he starts to regenerate, 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 regenerate. On one side, you have Donna. On the other side, you have Mel Bush, who returns for the special. And you think he's going to regenerate to another face, but no. Instead, he asks both Donna and Mel to pull each arm in each different direction. And what happens is just one of the most incredible, one of the most heartwarming scenes I think I've ever seen in the franchise. I rarely say, I feel like I need to watch this episode twice. I felt like I needed to watch this episode twice. But they pull the Doctor, and he starts to split apart into the 14th Doctor, played by David Tennant, and the 15th Doctor, played by Shuti Gatwa. 
Yes, I researched how to pronounce his name. Oh, thank God. I was wondering how you pronounced that. So we have two doctors at the same time. And 15's like, well, don't just stand there. Push! So they literally split into two doctors. And it is one of the most amazing things I think I've seen all year. But back to Man from Atlantis, Mark foils his plan by flooding the undersea habitat and helping the scientists escape. Although the fate of Schubert is unknown, he decides to return to his aquatic life. But when reflecting on his recent encounter with humans, returns to a delighted Dr. Merrill, declaring, I have not yet learned enough, thus setting the stage for further adventures with the Man from Atlantis. Herbert Solo's production company was actually spun off from the live-action arm of Hanna-Barbera Productions, which, if you think about it, explains a lot. The Foundation's headquarters was represented by the Point Furman Lighthouse in San Pedro, California, and undersea voyages of the Cetacean were done in miniature thanks to the team of Gene Warren. But you probably want to know who Mark Dr. Merrill, and C.W. Crawford are. So I'll tell you. Mark Harris is played by Patrick Duffy, again, before Frank Lambert of Step by Step, before Bobby Ewing of Dallas, and of course before season one of Bingo America. And we all know, Mike, how much you love Bingo America. Oh yeah, I just absolutely love it. Tell us how you really feel, Mike. It sucks. It stinks. Playing Dr. Elizabeth Merrill is Belinda Montgomery, known for being a that woman from that thing. She started out playing Cinderella in 1969's Hey Cinderella. Hold on. Hey Cinderella. Hey Cinderella, featuring Jim Henson's Muppets. Oh, that's terrific. Perhaps... Men of a certain age, like the three of us, would know her best as Catherine Hauser, the mother of Neil Patrick Harris's character on Doogie Hauser, M.D. Oh, my God. And we did not plan that. We did not plan we talk about Neil Patrick Harris on Doctor Who, knowing that his on-screen mother is in this show. She was in Tron Legacy as Grandma Flynn. Oh. And then as... C.W. Crawford Jr., we have the late, great Alan Fudge. Fudge. Over the last 10 years, I spent a great deal of time looking at intros of various television shows. I looked at Alan Fudge's name. I'm thinking to myself, that can't be his name. You think, oh, this could not possibly be the name of a real person. But nope, it definitely is his name. And you know what? I thank him for not asking to change his name, because that would be embarrassing if he chose that name as his screen name. But nope, that's the name he was born with, and that's the name he's sticking with. Oh, fudge. Only I didn't say fudge. I said the word, the big one, the queen mother of dirty words, the F-dash-dash-dash word. So among Alan Fudge's many credits were two different roles on two different episodes of Highway to Heaven, 
Magnum PI, The New Adventures of Wonder Woman, Capricorn One as an uncredited capsule communicator. Oh, Capricorn One, the epic movie with James Brolin and O.J. Simpson. Before we knew what we know now about O.J. Simpson, allegedly. Allegedly. And then 27 episodes of Seventh Heaven as Lou Dalton. No, Chico, you're not going to make me say it. No, there are some things that I will not lower myself for, and I will lower myself to plenty other things here on this podcast. But no, that's not one of them. His last role was as Alan Brand in the shareholder meeting episode of The Office in 2009. I would have laughed if his last role was as Alan Fudge as himself. Did Alan Fudge ever play himself even? <laughs> no, he did not. Well, that would have made it more funny. But yeah, he was a that guy from that thing as a man from Atlantis. I shot. I shied. We don't talk about eyeshine on this podcast, do we? What is eyeshine? I don't even know. We've talked about it. It's a crime drama television series based on the starring character from the 1978 miniseries To Kill a Cop, which in turn was based on the 1976 novel by Robert Daly. It lasted one season on NBC, much like this show. He was also in Paper Dolls, which lasted one season on ABC. Now, he was also on another show we don't talk about all that much on uh, this podcast. What's that? He was on a season seven episode of Wings. He he played a mayor. Well, let's all remember, guys. (laughs) It was back in episode 300, where for the first time ever on this podcast, I mentioned that I loved Wings. How many episodes is that now? 137 episodes. Man. Too many. Could you believe that? 300 episodes. That was the first time I ever said it. Seems like only yesterday. And then as the villainous Mr. Schubert, we have somebody we already talked about earlier this year. Victor Buono. That's right, because we talked about him in the Dick Tracy pilot. Dear Dick Tracy. Tracy. He's a, He's good, a cop. good cop. We almost did that in unison. Good job. Again, totally unrehearsed. But also, we've talked about Victor Bono a number of times in the past. Uh, I mentioned he was in the unsold pilot, the Rita Moreno show, which is absolutely abysmal. And hopefully it appears online one day. And we also talked about him in Sirota's Court earlier this year, but also we talked about him on Super Train. Oh, yeah. But let's not also forget he was King Tut in the Batman 66 TV show, not to be confused with Batman 66. Yeah, because in Batman 66, it would have been King Tut. It would have been King Butt. He's got a fat ass. Fat ass is And then there was an ensemble cast that's just credited as Crew of the Cetacean, consisting of Richard Lawrence Williams, J. Victor Lopez, Jean Marie Hahn, who is on future entry ARC 2, and Anson Downs. And in the 12th episode, there was a new female lead character introduced, Dr. Jenny Reynolds, played by Lisa Blake Richards. She was supposed to be sort of a pseudo 
replacement for Belinda Montgomery. According to IMDb, Lisa Blake Richards is best known as card player number two in Mr. Mom, Janet in Rolling Thunder, and the opening voiceover in 29 episodes of Dark Shadows from 1969 to 1970. What a career. Still at it, actually. She's not doing anything memorable, so don't even try and research it. Okay. The last memorable thing she did was one episode of Heart of Dixie. So we talked about one movie. Do we want to talk about the other three? Or do we want to keep this strictly series? We can keep it strictly to the show. But we can mention that the three other TV movies, The Death Scouts aired on May 7th of 1977. Killer Spores aired on May 17th of 1977. And The Disappearances aired on June 20th of 1977. And all four were released on home video back in the day. The first movie, we talked about it already. It's, it was simply titled Man from Atlantis. Features guest shots from Lawrence Pressman, also of the Doogie Hauser, and Philip Baker Hall. Philip Baker Hall was in an episode of It's a Living, but Greg, he was Joe Bookman on two episodes of Seinfeld. Oh, yes. The library and, of course, the finale. The library, great episode. The finale, not so much. Movie number two, titled Man from Atlantis 2, The Death Scouts. A human scientist capable of living underwater discovers similar alien life inhabiting human bodies and looks to them for a clue to his origin. Movie number three, Man from Atlantis 3, Killer Spores. The cetacean is called upon to recover a space probe that crashes in the sea, and Mark soon learns that the probe is covered with thousands of tiny alien beings. They intend to learn all they can about the human race by invading host bodies and controlling them. Mark must return them to space before they destroy all humanity. Playing Colonel Manzone in this movie, James Sicking, who would be Doogie Howser's daddy. That's right. Wait, what was his character's name, J.B. Seeking? Colonel Manzone. Oh, I want a Colonel Manzone! Hey! Give me a Colonel Manzone up in this. And playing Edwin Shirley in this movie, Ivan Bonar, which we talked about a couple of weeks ago when we talked about the Colbys. He played Henderson Palmer. And the final movie, Man from Atlantis for the disappearances. Elizabeth is kidnapped, one of dozens of scientists held prisoner on the island of Felicitos, controlled by special mineral springs that render their victims completely happy and compliant. Dr. Smith is using them to build a rocket to take her away from our troubled planet in search of some better world, and Mark must find a way to counter the brainwashing and free the captives. Playing Dr. Smith, that's Dr. Mary Smith, Darlene Carr, she's done a lot of voice work. She was in Savage Dragon, Captain Planet, The Real Adventures of Johnny Quest, The Secret of Nim, and The Pirates of Darkwater. Ooh, The Pirates of Darkwater. Very big cult animated show. Okay, now we're into the series. No, we're not. Oh, we're not? 
we have one more person playing a minion in this movie. Wait, a minion? Well, Mike, it's like 35 years before minions. I don't think you'd have a Hello. Movie. Not that type, but I thank you for playing. <laughs> playing a minion in his third ever credit, Ernie Hudson. Wow. Magic from Quantum Leap is in this? Well, I was thinking from Ghostbusters, but your mileage may vary on that. Winston. So yeah, now we can get to the TV series proper. Episode one, and this aired September 22nd, 1977. So we had a whole summer to get pumped for the series. They start with Meltdown. Water levels are rising all over the Earth. Still are. Mr. Schubert offers to stop the disaster in exchange for Mark Harris, but it's the villain himself who is melting the world's ice caps with microwaves. Schubert agrees to stop the meltdown if Mark will stay on his own free will as a test subject, though his true plan is to flood the world and repopulate it with a new species of water-breathing men. As a hot dog stand owner, we talked about her in the past, D. Wallace Stone. Oh, Elliot's mom was a hot dog's inventor in the first episode. And as an uncredited cameo as a newscaster, Mike Douglas, speaking of big names. Mike Douglas, wow. Episode 2, The Mudworm. Ships are being damaged by an unknown agent hidden at a depth impossible for the Navy to reach, where the cetacean finds an automated robot, the Mudworm. It is programmed to crawl along the sea bottom collecting mineral samples, but was damaged, and now resists all efforts to approach it with deadly force. Mark manages to shut down the robot and haul it inside the cetacean, but when it reactivates, it will destroy everything in its path in an effort to escape. That includes Mark. Episode 3, Hawk of Moo. Schubert's tracking of a mysterious power source causes a blackout at the center of which Mark discovers an ancient statue of a hawk. When he rescues Schubert's daughter Juliet from drowning, the villain learns of the hawk and steals it to discover the secret of its power. We have Mr. Schubert, Victor Buono, returning as the big bad, as Juliet Schubert, a lady by the name of Victoria Huxtable. Her credits basically span from 1974 to 1980, and the most notable thing that she was ever in is a recurring role in previous entry, Fish. Oh, Fish. I thought you said bitch. Ha! Ah, ah! It sounded like you said bitch. Why can't it be both? Episode. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm sorry. I've got Abe Vaguda playing a bitch. I'm sorry. I, I can't get that out of my mind. Thank you, Greg. Just remember, I thought when he said Batman 66, he said Batman 66. Oh, great. So now whenever we talk about fish, I'm going to think you said bitch. Oh, Lord. Episode. <laughs> And we all and we all know who the real bitch was on uh, Fish, Florence Stanley, his wife. Oh gee, <laughs> everyone knows it was Florence Stanley. Oh lord, ah, uh, not a bar episode 
four. Giant. The world is endangered when a vortex opens in the ocean and Mark must find where it's going and somehow stop it before all the water is drained away. Playing a character named Thark. Oh, I think this is the giant. I'm just saying. He may very well be a giant. Is this typecasting? No, never mind. (laughs) He was definitely a giant when he fought Bruce Lee in Game of Death. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, ladies and gentlemen. The wise athlete Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, because I don't know if you've ever heard his podcast. He's got a good podcast. Would he have just arrived with the Lakers at this point in 77? Because how long was he in Milwaukee? I thought it was till like about 74 or so, but I could be wrong. Uh, 75, he went to the Lakers. Okay, so he's been in L.A. for two years now. And he would play for the Lakers until 1989. Wow. Yeah, he was like 40 when he retired, right? 42. Oh, jeez. He was old when he retired. Wow. Yeah, I think he just turned 75 this year. Oh, my. Actually, that would be 76. Okay. Oh, jeez. Can't handle that. Kareem's now getting close to 80. Just remember, his name is Roger Murdoch. And he's a pilot. It should be noted that we recorded this episode before Kareem's accident that left him in the hospital. So we here at the podcast wish Kareem a speedy recovery. Episode five Man o' War. That's Man o' War. Trapped for cash from his many expensive bids for world domination, evil will do that to you, Schubert breeds an aggressive genetically altered jellyfish 10 feet across named Poobah and uses it for blackmail. When the creature attacks a swim meet, Mark must battle for the jellyfish. Hold on. Now I'm thinking about Austin Powers where Dr. Evil had the sharks with freaking laser beams on their heads. All right, we started with, you know, these serious plot lines with uh, eco-terrorism and the Earth's oceans in danger, and it's up to this research team to use their combined mental might to stop it. And now we have basically a plot from a James Bond movie. Yeah, now they're getting really ridiculous. Now, wait, I got an idea as how you would repel that. Isn't one way to get rid of jellyfish or jellyfish stings to pee on somebody or pee on their leg? So get like a couple people, just take a whiz, you'll get rid of the jellyfish. I don't think, Mike, that they were ready to show that in 1977 on NBC. They had censor boxes. They could have put it on After Dark. They could have been like, you want to see the uncensored version of this? Go to NBC whatever. NBC Premium. Whatever Peacock was in 1977, they would have carried this. Look, Mike, I don't think On TV was on yet in 1977. I tried. Playing character named Dushki, Harvey Jason, a that guy from that thing who was on an episode of Star Trek The Next Generation, Greg, and also an episode of Night Court, Mike. 
And we can round it out by saying, hey, Chico, was he on an episode of Power Rangers? Well, no, that would be the trifecta, and that's not happening. No, it is not. But if Kiesel was here, she would love to know that he was on an episode of Dynasty. Because as we all know, Kiesel loves all that shit. But playing Blaze Mullen, somebody everybody loves, Gary Owens. Can we say Gary Owens making a low-key Hall of Fame case? But guys... Playing a maitre d' in this episode, Monty Landis, best known as Mario in Pee-wee's Big Adventure. Oh, Mario in Pee-wee's Big Adventure. Was also in previous entry, The Golden Palace, as Mr. Rashuti in an episode. That was a good episode, The Golden Palace. Episode 6, Shootout at Land's End. No, this is not the catalog store, ladies and gentlemen. While investigating an underwater volcano, Mark is stricken with sudden pain in the shoulder. This is not the first time he's felt pain for no reason, and his instincts lead him to a deserted beach and inexplicably to a frontier town of the Old West called Land's End. There he meets his identical twin, Billy, another water breather who washed up on a beach with no knowledge of his true identity. Billy takes Mark's place aboard the cetacean, leaving the man from Atlantis to face the villains of Land's End. Obviously, Patrick Duffy plays a dual role in this episode. Yeah, this isn't typecasting. Playing two of the people in Land's End, Clint Hollister and Artemis Washburn, Pernell Roberts and Noble Willingham, respectively. Colonel Roberts, of course, was Adam Cartwright on Bonanza long before he was Trapper John M.D. And Noble Willingham was on Walker, Texas Ranger with Chuck Norris. Walker told me I have AIDS. Damn you! I was trying to avoid saying that. Episode 7. Crystal Water, Sudden Death. The cetacean finds an underwater force field which shelters a race of air breathers with a strange clicking language. Mr. Schubert forces the clicks to mine crystal for him, but taking the crystals will cause the field to collapse and kill them all unless Mark can intervene. One of the clickers, Havergal, played by a man we don't talk about a lot on this podcast except when we really do, René Aubergenois. Nothing. Benson and Deep Space Nine. And he was D's acting coach on that one episode of It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. That's right, he was. Episode 8 The Naked Montague. When a sea quake opens a fissure and Mark investigates, he finds himself in the world of Romeo and Juliet. Playing Romeo, John Shea from The Lois and Clark and The Gossip Girl. He was Bobby Kennedy in the NBC Kennedy miniseries with Martin Sheen as JFK. And I think I've mentioned this. You know who played Teddy Kennedy in that? Kevin Conroy. Ah, nice. So Martin Sheen's brothers in the Kennedy miniseries on NBC were Bruce Wayne and Lex Luthor. Playing Juliet on this episode is Lisa Elbacher who was in episodes of Wagon Train, Laredo, My Three Sons, and Gunsmoke before finding her way aboard the Cetacean. Keeping it relevant to things that we've seen this week, she was in 
Beverly Hills Cop. The original Beverly Hills Cop. And it's relevant because next year on Netflix, we get the fourth entry in the series, Beverly Hills Cop Axel F. And they're bringing back everybody for this. Even like Bronson Pinchell is coming back as Surge. Playing Friar Lawrence in this episode, Louis Arquette. I believe this is the first time we've ever discussed an Arquette on this podcast. No! No, we've talked about Rosanna and SNL 86. I stand corrected. She was the host of the SNL episode that was preempted by Game 6 of the 86 series between the Mets and the Red Sox. But hold on a second. I think we've talked about David in an episode or two. We had to have mentioned David before. And we definitely (laughs) have mentioned Cliff Arquette as Charlie Weaver. I think Louis Arquette did a voice in uh, Hulk Hogan Rock and Wrestling, didn't he? Yes. He was Superfly Jimmy Snuka. Oh, well, given what Superfly Jimmy Snuka did, if you watch Dark Side of the Ring. Oh, God. And while he was voicing Superfly Jimmy Snuka, he was the old beachcomber Lucas Buchanan on Future Entry Rocky Road on TBS. One of the Arthur Company joints right there. Hell is Rocky Road. It's one of the Arthur and Echerico joints. Yeah, Down to Earth about the Angel, Safe at Home about the sportscaster, and Rocky Road about the family who's running the ice cream shop on the beach when both of their parents have died. Now you made me think about Sloth when he says, Rocky Road. Hey, some other places that we've talked about him in the past. He was on an episode of Delta House, an episode of Ten Spreed and Brown Shoe, and he was on an episode of E slash R. So possible future Hall of Famer? I really think if he's in, he's getting in because of Hulk Hogan's rock and wrestling, to be honest. And then playing Samson... David Gautreaux, who we talked about as Commander Branch Gregg in the original Star Trek The Motion Picture. Oh, yes, Star Trek The Motion Picture. I think the last thing I remember him in was an episode of For All Mankind on Apple TV+. And the new season just premiered, I believe. But I was looking at who wrote this episode. A guy by the name of Stephen Candell. His credits include Mannix and MacGyver and two episodes of Star Trek. Episode 9, C.W. Hyde. An enzyme from a rock fossil Mark finds on the seafloor with the properties of changing people's personalities gets into C.W.'s copy while Mark and Elizabeth are sent to recover a lost survey probe with a deadly self-destruct booby trap. As a bartender in this episode, Frank Bonner. Oh, Frank Bonner from WKRP in Cincinnati. And let's not forget, Frank Bonner was the one who sold Henry the refrigerator on Punky Brewster that Sherry was locked in. And then we have an interesting credit. Playing Sarah is somebody named Pamela Peters Solo, credited as Pamela Peters. I have to wonder if that is one of Herbert Solo's daughters, because he has three. Episode 10, Scavenger Hunt. 
Mysterious, deadly canisters buried at the ocean floor resurface on a primitive island where Muldoon has the natives believing he speaks for a powerful god. Oh yeah, this is another recurring big bad guys. Jack Muldoon, played by Ted Neely, who has perhaps the biggest, most pressured role ever. He was Jesus in 1973's Jesus Christ Superstar. Jesus. But we did talk about him in Tucker's Witch, so a little less pressure than playing the Son of God. Playing Kanja, the speaker for the natives, somebody we also talked about a long time ago, Greg, Ted Cassidy. Oh, Lurch. Episode 11, Imp. Disaster strikes at the Triton undersea habitat and threatens to spread to the world upon the appearance of Moby, a being that turns men's minds to those of a child. Hold on. When you said imp, I thought you said pimp. <laughs> Let's just leave it right there, Greg, because I know where your mind's about to go. <laughs> mine's going to the time we talked about fish, and I thought you said bitch. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> well, just remember, impin' ain't easy couple big names on this episode playing Duke, Jaime the Robot himself, Dick Godier, and playing Moby, the being that turns men's minds to those of a child, Arnold Takahashi himself, Pat Morita. Oh, that's amazing. What a one-two punch for this episode. Episode 12, and this is the episode where we have the uh, substitute doctor in for... Uh, Belinda Montgomery's character. Siren. Mark believes a series of sonic attacks to be the song of a siren. He finds a young siren held prisoner on a submarine and must free her from the underwater pirates. Playing a member of the Cetacean crew, and this is actually the first appearance of her as a member of the crew, outside the crew that's on every other episode, Kim Lankford from Knott's Landing. And the final episode, Deadly Carnival. When a man who works at a carnival dies from drowning, Mark is sent to investigate. He learns that two men who work at the carnival are planning something that requires a someone who can hold their breath underwater. And of course, playing Moxie, one of the Carney Barkers. Say it! Billy Birdie. Oh, that's fantastic. Did he have another little person of a magician with him? Not for another year. Oh. And we have another substitute blonde doctor next to Mark Harris on board the Cetacean. Playing Charlene Baker in this episode, Sharon Farrell from Hawaii Five-0, the last season. Well, it's funny that you mentioned Hawaii Five-0. We'll talk about that in a bit. We also talked about Sharon Farrell previously in Kolchak the Night Stalker. And we mentioned her uh, when we talked about Kolchak the Night Stalker. She was on the first week of Match Game 78 where they used the star wheel. Oh, yes. And sadly, we lost her earlier this year, May 15th of 2023 at age 82. What happened with this show? Because the TV movies were well received. So... How did this go wrong when it went to series? 
Well, I've got schedules in front of me. And I took a look at the ratings, and the ratings really were not that good, especially about eight, nine, ten episodes into the series. That's when it ventured into the zaniness, I think. Right. Yeah, you did mention that that it got a little overly fictitious. So the first movie aired from 9 to 11 p.m. And up against it, and this is on a Friday night, mind you, was the Brady Bunch Variety Hour and ABC News Close-Up, which I would guess is something similar to 2020. Maybe 2020 before 2020, since 2020 at that time would have been on Thursday nights. On CBS, though, maybe in 1977, this is not much competition. The first hour of Man from Atlantis went up against the Sonny and Cher show. And the second hour went up against something called Hunter, not that Hunter from NBC, with Fred Dreyer and Stephanie Pramer. I don't know if this is movie... Two or three, I think this is two, aired on a Saturday night from 9 to 11. This is not good competition all around. I'm surprised it survived this. On ABC, it went up against the last two hours of Thunderball. And then on CBS, remember CBS's comedy night then was Saturdays, All in the Family, Alice, and The Carol Burnett Show, albeit the last of those Carol Burnett show would have been final season, I do believe. And then one more movie aired on Tuesdays. I I think this is number three. Uh, Again, 8 to 10 p.m. I have the ABC competition. The CBS competition was preempted here. ABC had Happy Days, Laverne and Shirley, and the first hour of Rich Man, Poor Man. That's tough right there, the 8 to 9 hour. Uh, And then... The CBS, like I said, was preempted here in Cleveland for Indians baseball versus the Minnesota Twins. That would have been kind of, yeah, in 1977. But then we get to the series proper. I've got this hopping all around. I saw it at nine. I saw it at eight. I believe this is the first episode of the series proper. Thursday, September 22nd. It aired at 9 p.m. till 10. On CBS, it went up against Hawaii Five-O. There's your Hawaii Five-O reference I think you were making earlier. Yes. And that would have been third to last season, I believe. Yeah, uh, because it ended in 80, so this would have been 77, 78. And then on ABC in that 9 to 10 hour, you had Barney Miller. And this would have been third season of Barney Miller, I think, or fourth season. And, oh, I hate saying this just because, well, this show aged horribly. Carter Country. That's right. Victor French. But sadly, without the sweet-ass A's hat. Not much later. uh, October 13th, it did air in the 9 to 10 hour. Hawaii Five-0 was its competition on CBS again. But on ABC, oh, man, this is really bad for Man from Atlantis. 9 p.m.? Three's Company. 9.30, Soap. Oh. So you're talking probably first season or second season of Three's Company and first season of Soap. No bueno. Then in December, it moved to Tuesday at 8 p.m. CBS aired some sort of special called Artemis Flag. I don't know what that is. 
But again, do you want another one-two punch from ABC? Happy days in Laverne and Shirley. Do you know what it got replaced with on the schedule in wintertime, Mike? What was that? According to Truth by Consensus Wikipedia, the Chuck Barris Raw Raw Show. Oh my gosh. Wow. I don't even know what that is, and I consider myself an expert on Chuck Barris. I think we should say that uh, good friend of this podcast, Adam Needif, just released his book about the gong show. I'm really looking forward to that entry about the Popsicle twins. Wouldn't it be something if he found them? So wait, you're wondering what the Chuck Barris rah-rah show was? Yeah, it doesn't even have a link on Wikipedia. I have some capsules here. I'll give you one just to give you an idea as to what it is. Host Chuck Barris is joined by Tex Beneke's orchestra with Paula Kelly and the Modern Airs. Paula Kelly, wow. The Marquee Chimps, Fred Travelina, Susan Alvernax, Henny Youngman, J.P. Morgan, Carl Ballantyne, the Wet Willie Band. <laughs> what <laughs> Wet Willie? the hell I, I just, is this? I'm the messenger. It, it says the Wet Willie Band. You do your own research. I'm not doing that. Look. They had me at Fred Travelina, so I'm sold instantly. Uh, Al Allen Peterson, The Four Coasters, Fiddlesticks, and The Unknown Comic. Now, I would have loved to have seen like Fred Travelina and The Unknown Comic do a set together. Okay, I have information about the Wet Willie Band. Wet Willie is an American rock band from Mobile, Alabama. Their best-known song, Keep on Smiling, reached number 10 on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100 chart. In August 1974. Ooh. So it kind of sort of sounds a little like Leonard Skinner, but, well, but not Leonard Skinner. Mom, I want Leonard Skinner. We have Leonard Skinner at home. <laughs> it's the Wet Woolly Band. That last schedule position is where it stayed throughout the rest of its run. So it continually went up against Happy Days in Laverne and Shirley. Maybe there's your reason why it didn't last past 13 regular episodes. But here's the thing, though. It does have a bit of a legacy, this show. Because Man from Atlantis will go down in history as the first American television show to be shown in communist China in 1980, where it aired under the title, and I'm getting this from our computer's uh, Chinese cousin here, which translates to The Man from the Bottom of the Atlantic. The impact of the series in China, according to Wikipedia, was so high that they actually had to reschedule a pianist's concert in order for everybody to watch the show. Everybody in China was like, we want more Patrick Duffy. Screw this pianist. And it also aired in Brazil, Portugal, Kuwait, the Netherlands, South Africa, Germany, France, and the UK, where it aired opposite to and often beat Doctor Who. Wow. And this is Tom Baker era Doctor Who, too. Maybe Mary Whitehouse was saying, you know, you shouldn't watch Doctor Who. It's too scary. Watch this man from Atlantis instead. I'm sure it's less scary. 
It also happened a year later when ITV aired Buck Rogers in the 25th century against Doctor Who. Yeah, because everyone wanted to watch it for... Well, you know why I want to watch Buck Rogers. Aaron Gray? Yes. Okay. Mike, you agree, right? I'm really surprised Chico had to confirm that. Not saying there's not other reasons to watch Buck Rogers, but... We just mentioned her last week. Yeah. We mentioned her in the That's My Line episode. Aside from all that, here in the States, we had the Dell novelization of the four movies and also a series of comics by Marvel published as Man from Atlantis, written by Bill Mantor with art by Frank Robbins and Frank Springer. And Kenner actually began development on a line of action figures based on the show, but it never proceeded past the prototype stage, while Dennis Fisher Toys passed on making Star Wars action figures for the UK as they thought the man from Atlantis would be more successful. Spoiler alert! It was not a success. They chose poorly. However, Patrick Duffy, after his time on Man from Atlantis, after his time on Dallas, after his time on Bingo America, after his time on... The Dallas reboot. No, this would be during the time of his Dallas reboot, I think. Oh, okay. But after his time on Step by Step, wrote a sequel novel and described it as thus, this was in 2016, June of 2016, when TV unveiled the series Man from Atlantis, no one knew the how, where, and why of Mark Harris. Over time, the show's star, Patrick Duffy, formulated his own version of the history of Mark and his people. Here at last is the book that gives every reader and fan of the show the life and mythology of Atlantis, who they were and where they came from. Patrick Duffy's close connection to his fictional character makes this a behind-the-scenes fantasy story. Memorable, but at the same time, and let me quote Tom Shales here, kids may be impressed by the heroics of the special effects, but the show lacked adult appeal, and the stories would soon wear thinner than water. Ah, Tom. Tom Shales is the unspoken villain of this podcast, I want to think. But he did co-write that SNL book. Earlier, I said... Hold oh, on, Amy. Amy, what are you doing? I'm the unwritten villain on this podcast. <laughs> That's right. Tom Shales can screw himself. You're the real villain of this yeah. podcast. That's right. Let Mike back in. I have to do the bit where we talk about home releases. Okay. Merry huh. Christmas, everybody. Merry Christmas, Whammy. The pilot film, as we mentioned earlier, was released on VHS by World Vision Home Video... Oh, hold on a second. This is the first time I'm ever going to say this on this podcast, but we should clarify. World Vision Enterprises, Inc. is not affiliated with World Vision International, a religious and charitable organization. And re-released in 87 by Good Times Home Video, and later released on DVD as part of Warner Archives Manufacture on Demand service from Warner Home Video on October 6, 2009. On July 26, 2011, 
Warner Brothers released Man from Atlantis, the complete TV movies collection on DVD, featuring all four films as well as Man from Atlantis, the complete television series for Region 1 DVD. The pilot film was released on Blu-ray by Warner Archive in 2019. However, if you cannot bother yourself with cumbersome physical media, all of the episodes of the series are available right now for a small fee on Amazon, Google Play, and Apple TV. What about Xbox Live Video Marketplace? Is it on that? Cannot verify one way or the other. Well, I can search right now. Because technically, the Xbox Live Video Marketplace still exists. But it says movies and TV. So I can search for that. So is it? Uh, yes. I don't know if it's the TV movie. I think the TV movie you can watch there on there. No, it says watch on Prime Video. So no. Okay, so we can add Prime Video to that. So, Aborted Toys, a novel, and you can watch the show digitally as of this recording. Not bad for a show that got kind of hokey at the end. But, in the end, Patrick Duffy, on his way to becoming Bobby Ewing and marrying Suzanne Summers, was in this thing on TV. You know what Patrick Duffy was never on, although they could keep a seat warm if he wanted it. The Magic Game Hollywood Squares Hour. Hit the music, please! It's time for This weekend Match Game. Hollywood Squares. Hour. History! Oh, this is going to be the epic week that we've been waiting a long time to talk about because this is Christmas week 1983. So, Mike, let's just get the cat out of the bag right now. Your celebrities this week, in no specific order, you had Leonard Fry again, Jim J. Bullock, Judy Landers, America's Sweetheart, Nidra Voles, Victoria Holman, Greg's oh, favorite. Oh, I Victoria Holman on this. Oh my God. Oh, until we get to Katie to the Meta. This was the first person that stole my heart after Rebecca Balding. So it was Rebecca Balding, Victoria Holman, then Katie to the Meta. And also Marty Cohen, Jimmy Walker, and the one and only Tom Poston. So this week, really all the fun started happening on the Thursday episode. Because on the Thursday episode, you had a $30,000 win with Leonard Fry. But then Friday. Maybe, in my opinion, one of the best episodes of the series. You got to see the big light board show Christmas trees and the six people who played the match game part sang Christmas carols at the start of the show. And Gene actually mentioned that there's 768 different squares on the match game board that light board with 2,304 total lights. Or actually, if you just do the quick math, 768 times three. So I'm guessing they had probably like a red light and a white light or a yellow light. And I'm guessing the other color must be blue. So you could uh, basically create a number of different color combinations 
if you do red and the blue, you get purple. So a little bit of science and color there. But also on Friday, this is something we've talked about continuously for four years, if not longer. Tom Poston had a mini coma during the super match on the episode before Christmas. He took a nap during the super match. Oh, what? what do you mean I took a nap during the super match? Oh, no. And if you think the fun ends on this week, next week is even better. And then really, the week after that is even better. Rubber. Don't give it away. They don't deserve it. Okay. We'll get to that in two weeks. But next week is also a big week. Another week we love around here. Back to Chico to wrap up this episode. Wow! Come on, everybody. Let's sing a song. I just had the weirdest dream. I dreamt I saw the strangest episode of Family Guy, and there was a giant chicken, and Stewie was an octopus. Hey, 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 come on now. It's all right. Everything's going to be okay. What's Family Guy? Episode 438, Submission Seven Ot Seven, The Adventures of Briscoe County Jr. The Adventures of Briscoe County Jr. aired on Fox from August twenty seventh, nineteen ninety three, to May twentieth of nineteen ninety four, for a total of twenty seven episodes. So it's a crock block plus eleven more episodes. So that's eleven more. Then the number of episodes, of course, of Uncle Crack's Block, The Hudson Brothers Razzle Dazzle Show, Tiger King, School, uh, number of aired episodes of Salvage One, J.J. Starbuck, Little Bush, Misfits of Science. Jabberjaw. Jabberjaw. <laughs> I forgot about Jabberjaw. Well, there's going to be some theme music here, but I'm going to make a note about the theme music when we get to the end, but... Let's just play this great theme music to Briscoe County Jr. right here.
and let me just say this is great theme music so it makes sense why they used it for baseball on NBC later well guys it's Fox in 1993 so Parker Lewis is gone at this point it just ended and what then it's when I was going into senior year and it's about to lose some of its luster there yeah, and Living Color is getting long in the tooth. Melrose Place hasn't gotten really raunchy yet. Oh, no. Married with Children. This is the season they went on the downcline when they added that uh, character Seven. Oh, Seven. Oh. They tried a lot of things on Fox in this time. Everything from Herman's Head to eventual cover. Whoops. Whoops, indeed. So for Fox, what do you do to try to get people interested in your network on Friday nights in 1993? You create a Western? Okay. Well, not just any Western. It would have to be something akin to the Wild Wild West of old. I mean, yes, it's a Western, but at the same time, it has steampunk elements. It has some futuristic sci-fi things thrown in. That's right. So you have to make it a weird-ass Western for Fox. But who do you get to play the lead character in your Western? Oh, I got it. How about the guy from Army of Darkness? This is way too niche for the guy from Army of Darkness. Actually, you know what? Yeah, it makes sense. And it's not like Bruce Campbell, who would ultimately play the role of Briscoe County Jr., not like he doesn't have a history as a genre actor. If I recall correctly, this is two years after he played Cliff Seekard in The Rocketeer. He wasn't in The Rocketeer, silly. He wasn't? No, he wasn't in The Rocketeer. I thought he was in The Rocketeer. Why did you think he was in The Rocketeer? He wasn't in The Rocketeer. I've seen The Rocketeer. I've watched The Rocketeer 9,000 times. Now you got to remember, Chico, I am a low Oh, that was Disney. Billy Campbell. Billy Campbell. <laughs> <laughs> you got the first letter in the, in the name and the last name, but not the whole name. So, Bruce Campbell a genre actor in a specifically genre series that was spun off as a good idea after somebody, presumably the creators, Jeffrey Bohm and Carlton Cuss, watched Indiana Jones of the Last Crusade and said, you know what, that's not a bad idea. Because you watch this show. I know you watch this show, Greg. I watch this show. You get a sort of Saturday matinee feel like the Indiana Jones and the Star Wars and that sort of thing. Yeah, you do get a vibe to that sort of thing in this show. I remember watching this in reruns on TNT, like in around like 97 or so. Jeffrey Bohm and Carlton Coos, who have up until now written Lethal Weapon 2 and Lethal Weapon 3, decided to collaborate for this show and pitched it to then-Fox executive Bob Greenblatt as a television series because of Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. 
He wanted a show, according to Truth by Consensus Wikipedia, that had a style similar to the Indiana Jones movies, while Cues stated watching old serials and noticed that many fell into two genres, westerns and science fiction. This gave Bowman Cues the idea to combine the genres and decided to emulate the serial style. For example, each act within an episode begins with a title, usually a pun, and ends with a cliffhanger. All of which is to say, we're going to have as much fun with this as we can. Historical accuracy be damned. Yeah, screw that. In fact, Carlton Cuse told USA Today, quote, We're not approaching this show as if we're doing a period piece. We see it as a contemporary program. Our characters just happen to be living in the West with 1990s sensibilities. The Indiana Jones movies were period pieces too, but you never thought of them that way, end quote. All right, let's get into the cast. Now we all know, we've mentioned it, Briscoe County Jr., of course, played by Bruce Campbell, actually auditioned for this five times to get the role. But who else do we have in the cast of this show, Chico? We have his rival, Lord Bowler, an ill-tempered bounty hunter who's a competitor and occasional collaborator with Briscoe County, played by Julius Carey, who would be the proprietor of the pizza place on Two Guys, a Girl, and a Pizza Place. Oh, yes. Two Guys, a Girl, and a Pizza Place, which we'll be covering next year for a very special month that it was a thing on TV. You have an idea of when that's going to be. But I just want to be clear right now. When we do that show, we're only going to talk about the episodes involving the pizza place. We're not going to cover the rest. We just want to talk about the pizza place. If Nathan Billion is listening, sorry. Me being me, I would know him best as the Shogun of Harlem, Shonuff, in The Last Dragon. Oh, The Last Dragon. Barry Gordy's epic. Was it was Apollonia in that, or was it Vanity? It was Vanity, dude! Okay, one of those two. One of the two people that was with Prince. This is like Billy Campbell and Bruce Campbell all over again, isn't it? Yeah, well. And then we have Socrates Poole, a lawyer in the employee of the robber barons who hired Bristow County Jr., sent to supervise him. He's played by Christian Clemenson, who won an Emmy for his work on Boston Legal as a guest star. He was in several acclaimed films like Hannah and Her Sisters, Broadcast News, Apollo 13, and The Big Lebowski. I remember him in the last three seasons as Dr. Tom Lohman, the wise beyond his years coroner, replacing Candy Alexander and or Megan Lynn Echinuoke's character on CSI Miami. Of course you'd know him from CSI Miami. You're the CSI Miami expert. I am. I can tell you right now. In the 10 years of CSI Miami, they had four coroners. The first one, Alex Woods, played by Candy Alexander, left on her own accord to spend more time with her family. The second one, Tara Price, played by Megalyn Echinuoke, she got popped for stealing drugs from crime scenes. In real life? No. Her character. Oh, okay. oh, if it was real life, that would be 
something else. And then there was the one who replaced her, who got shot in the head on her first day. And then they wrap up the series with Christian Clemenson's character, Dr. Tom Lemon. Wow. Oh, playing Dixie Cousins. <laughs> what a name. Played by Kelly Rufferford. That she serves as the love interest for Briscoe County Jr. in this series. Oh, she would. Oh, yeah. Well, Chico, do you have any information on the IMDb page of Miss Kelly Rufferford? She was in Melrose Place. She was on Generations back when that was a thing. I don't even know what Generations is. What's Generations? Generations was sort of an attempt by NBC to pretty much make current the soap opera because we had several generations of uh, racially diverse cast. Now, guys, we got a horse on this show. The horse's name is Comet. Horse. Because obviously, Briscoe County Jr., where's he going to get around? They don't have cars in the 1800s. Imagine if Comet was a dog. Could you imagine the crossover where Comet the dog from Full House time-traveled and met Comet the horse from Briscoe County Jr.? We have some recurring players, too, as Professor Albert Wickwire, an eccentric chemist, physicist, and experimentalist who assists County in adventures and seeks to learn more about the orb because all of this is happening in pursuit of an orb. We'll get to that in a moment, but gotta tell you who it is. Playing Professor Albert Wickwire, the legendary John Aston. That's right, Gomez Adams himself. And we talked about him back in Erie, Indiana. And then we have, as John Bly, a flamboyant and psychotic outlaw who turns out to be a fugitive from the distant future who has traveled to 1893 to steal the orb, Billy Drago. He was the villain in The Untouchables and Pale Rider. And then we have one of Bly's henchmen called Peter... Hunter, that's Peter with two T's, played by John Piper Ferguson. John Piper Ferguson, best known for this show, and also Tomas Burgess on the Battlestar Galactica prequel Caprica, and Tex on the TNT series The Last Ship, James Kendrick on USA's Burn Notice, and Jack Soloff on USA's Suits. Which means he was in the cast with Megan, the Duchess of Cambridge. No, that's Megan, the briefcase girl on Deal or No Deal. Thank you very much. Whatever. So those are our players. Let's go rustle up some cowboys and what we can find. Okay, well, I got all the recaps from the iTunes description, so let me all read them off right here, starting with the pilot. Bruce Campbell stars as Briscoe County Jr., a courageous bounty hunter in the Old West who seeks revenge against the outlaw gang that murdered his father. Playing his father, Briscoe County Sr., the legendary R. Lee Ermey. Oh, yes. Full metal jacket, everybody. 
and of course, a veteran of the Marine Corps for 11 years in real life, Semper Fi. And he was the voice of the Army Men guy in Toy Story. Do we have anybody else in the pilot? Uh, playing Amanda Wickwire in this episode, at least. And this is Albert Wickwire's daughter, I believe. And Trumpko. Oh. Leslie Burke from Save by the Bell, the college years, ladies and gentlemen. Oh, man. But, oh, guys, playing a defendant in this episode. Future, it was a thing on TV Hall of Famer, the late, great Terry Funk. And in a role as a judge, another future, it was a thing, Hall of Famer, Burt Remsen from It's a Living. Oh, man. They got everybody in this pilot. And there's even more, believe it or not. Oh! Playing Kenyon Drummond in this episode is Robert Fuller from Emergency. All right, episode two, The Orb Scholar. Briscoe is betrayed by an old friend who works for the ruthless John Bly, but is saved by Professor Coles, an elderly scholar who has learned to control the power of the mysterious orb. And this is basically the orb, as it's known, is central to the entire series. In the role of Professor Ogden Coles, from Brothers, Brandon Maggart. Also, and we say this every time we bring up Brandon Maggart, father of Fiona Apple. Episode 3, No Man's Land. Briscoe, Professor Wickwire, and Lord Bowler help save a town inhabited by women from an attack by a vicious gang of outlaws couple of names in this episode start with Sheriff Jenny Taylor, Denise Crosby. Oh, yes. Tasha Yar from Star Trek The Next Generation Season 1. And as a guy by the name of Gil Swill, Judson Scott, Lieutenant James from the original V series. But also, let's remember, he was uncredited as Khan's henchman. In Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. Episode 4, Briscoe and Jalisco. Briscoe, Socrates, and Dixie try to prevent a mercenary bandit from selling a stolen shipment of rifles to a power-mad Mexican revolutionary. Playing said revolutionary, General Saka, Miguel Perez. Wait. No... What? Sorry, what? Is this the Miguel Perez from Juana Man? No, that's Miguel A. Nunez. Oh, whatever. No, this is Miguel Perez from an episode of Seinfeld. Two episodes of Fear of the Walking Dead as El Matanfe. And five episodes of The Show Must Go Online, whatever that is. It came out in 2020, which means it could be anything. Yeah, it was the pandemic. You could put any <laughs> online and people were like, oh yeah, we're desperate for something. Playing Emilio Peña, Michael De Lorenzo, two or three years before New York Undercover. And we all know, Chica, how much you love New York Undercover. I'm a big fan of New York Undercover. You know what? F Law and Order, F Homicide. No, don't F Homicide because yeah. rest in peace, Andre Brower. Yeah, but well. F Law and Order, New York Undercover is some of Dick Wolf's best work. Oh, Malik Yoba. 
I'm a big fan of Malik Kilba. Okay, episode five. Socrates' sister. Frisco meets up with Socrates' sister while tracking a band of counterfeiters. Playing Socrates' sister, Iphigenia Poole, Judith Hogue from the first Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movie. That's right. And she has a NECA figure. And we all love the NECA figures. Right, Mike? I'm waiting to buy actually three of them right now. I just don't know if I want to buy it right now when I need to buy Christmas gifts. But in my Amazon cart, I've got the Alf NECA figurine. And on Best Buy, I've got the Earl Sinclair and Baby Sinclair figurines. And let's just say the Earl Sinclair figurine is glorious. Couple more names in this episode playing Jack Randolph, William Russ, who would be uh, Corey's daddy on Boy Meets World. Boy Meets World's gonna play a factor when we get to the end. Got another name playing a farmer, Owen Bush, best known as Crimshaw from Our House from 1986 to 1988, or Mr. Boone in The Last Starfighter, if you remember that movie. Oh, I do. I have the Arrow Video Blu-ray sitting in my collection. Episode 6, Riverboat. Briscoe, Socrates, Ward Bowler, and Dixie join forces to arrest a murderous Louisiana gambler from John Bly's gang. Couple big names in this episode. First one playing Brett Bones, Xander Berkeley from 24. And he's in Apollo 13. And then as Randy Hatchett, that's a sharp name if ever I heard one, Don Stroud. He was in a whole lot of stuff. He was in um, License to Kill, 007 as Heller, Django Unchained as Sheriff Bill Sharp, and played Jesse in the Buddy Holly story, but perhaps best known as Father Bolin in the original Amityville Horror from 1979. Episode 7, Pirates. Arg! Briscoe and Bowler join forces to capture a marauding outlaw and his gang who costume themselves as swashbuckling pirates in the Old West. Arg! How can they be pirates if there's no water in the Old West? Arg! Playing, oh god, the name of this pirate is absolutely nuts. Blackbeard Lacut. Played by Andrew Devoff, best known for Wishmaster. Air Force One, another 48 hours, not the original 48 hours, but another 48 hours. And his turn as Ivan Sarnoff, Russian mob boss on a series-long arc on CSI Miami. Playing Charlie Sims, Adam Wiley. Oh, yes. From Pick Offenses. And he was in Santa with Muscles. With Mila Kunis. A young Mila Kunis. And Bakley Jr. And Robin Curtis. And Garrett Morris. Like, the less said about Santa with muscles, the better. Okay, I'm going to switch to another uh, guy. Playing Sketch is Robert O'Reilly, best known as Gowron on the Star Trek The Next Generation and Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Episode 8. Senior Spirit. While rescuing a kidnapped boy from John Bly, Briscoe is guided by the ghost of his dead father, Briscoe County Senior. So we get Arlene Ermy back as a ghost. That's freaky. 
not as freaky as the guy who plays Jason Bartley in this episode. Jason Marsden from Boy Meets World and a Goofy movie and Full House. And Erie, Indiana. Because he was in the last six episodes of Erie, Indiana. And previous entry, The Monsters Today. Yes. I think he's built his Hall of Fame case. Episode 9, Briscoe for the Defense. Briscoe uses his Harvard Law School education and investigative bounty hunting skills to defend a college classmate who is on trial for murder. So in this episode, playing Cassie Crow is Carol Houston. She was in two episodes of Viper and 15 episodes of Matlock and 15 episodes of a show that we'll talk about when we talk about it, okay? And then we have as Judge Silent Gat, the late, great Tony J. You would know him as Megabyte from Reboot, Shere Khan from The Jungle Book 2, Magneto and X-Men Legends, and considered to portray Obi-Wan in Star Wars before he was turned down in favor of Sir Alec Guinness. Episode 10, Showdown. Briscoe returns to his hometown to help his childhood friend and her father defeat a gang of murdering ranchers. A couple of names of this episode we have as Annie Cavendish, Jessica Tuck. Jessica Tuck, of course, she is best known for Super 8 and True Blood and Judging Amy. And also playing Olaf Brackman, Anthony Stark, best known as Chad Finletter in Return of the Killer Tomatoes. Return of the Killer Tomatoes. While we're on genre-appropriate broadcasting. Episode 11, Deep in the Hearth of Dixie. Briscoe must locate Dixie and retrieve a cylindrical recording from her that contains an incriminating conversation between the outlaw John Bly and a popular presidential candidate. Now, I have an idea of who the presidential candidate is because we talked about it many times because, as we all know, he's not two different people. And I'm talking about Glover Cleveland. Playing Winston Smiles is David Warner, who was in the second Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movie. He was in SOS Titanic and also Titanic. Episode 12, Crystal Hawks. While trailing Big Smith, a member of John Bly's outlaw gang, who reappears from the dead with superhuman powers, Briscoe is falsely accused of murdering a robber baron. Playing Crystal Hawks, Sheena Easton. Oh, that's terrific. Sheena Easton. Of course, sang a Bond theme in For Your Eyes Only, but also let's not forget her stunning rendition in Santa Claus the movie. It's Christmas all over the world. She is still an absolute darling. Episode 13, Steel Horses. Briscoe, Bowler, and Socrates must capture the outlaws who stole four secret new inventions called motorcycles? What? 
It's like horses, but with wheels. I'm sure this is not going to last. I'm sure this is going to be like a passing fad. Oh, yeah. There's no way. Playing Juno Dawkins, Don Michael Paul. He wrote Harley Davidson and the Marlboro Man, speaking of steel horses. And let's not forget, it had Don Johnson and Andrew Dice Clay in that movie. This is all coming back to CSI Miami. He played a guy who thought he killed somebody. Turns out he did not kill somebody. You have to watch the episode to get it. I didn't think this episode would turn into Chico talks about CSI Miami, but... Hey, with the amount of times you've talked about Tony Shalhoub... Well, that is true, because as you all know, I love wings. And I haven't watched the Monk movie on Peacock yet, but I will. Episode 14, Mail Order Brides. (laughs) Mail Order Brides, everybody. I wonder what this could be about. Briscoe and Bowler protect three prospective mail-order brides and an enormous Spanish bull from the cruelties of the outlaw Swill Brothers. So wait. They gotta protect three mail-order brides and a bull. I wonder if that was the bull that was running around the Newark Railroad yesterday. A couple of names in this episode. As Sally Dane, I'm guessing one of the mail-order brides, Romy Rosemont, who was seen in the last nine episodes of A Million Little Things earlier this year. She's also been in Big Sky, Station 19, Chicago Med, Law & Order, Barry. And also, as Mayor Dix and Lightning Ed, I have to credit them jointly, Mark Thompson and Brian Phelps, a.k.a. Mark and Brian, from future entry, The Adventures of Mark and Brian. Episode 15, a.k.a. Kansas. Briscoe, Bowler, and Dixie pursue Frank Doc McCoy, an outlaw once married to Dixie, as he attempts to steal the mysterious orb from a military research site. In this episode, playing Doc McCoy, Christopher Rich from The George Carlin Show, and Murphy Brown, and also that one Archie made-for movie, and also... 122 episodes of Reba, where he played Brock Hart, a.k.a. Joanna Garcia's husband, a.k.a. the luckiest son of a bitch ever to share a stage with him. Uh, You forgot two more things about him. What's that? Christopher Rich was on multiple weeks of Match Game Hollywood Squares Hour. Plus, he he also played Prince Charming on The Charmings. Oh, we weren't going to talk about that! (laughs) I didn't get the memo! Fine. Carol Huston was also on the Charmings. They were married. He was Prince Charming. Carol Huston was Snow White. And the less said about the Charmings, the better. And playing a character named Mongoose, Oba Babatunde from Black Dynamite, How High, and one of my favorite shows ever to come from Netflix, Dear White People. Episode 16. Bounty Hunter Convention. How do you get a bunch of bounty hunters to show up at a convention? You know, when I think about this, I think about the scene in The Empire Strikes Back where Darth Vader has all the bounty hunters together to try to get Han Solo. Okay, nice bounty hunter turnout today. 
Let's see, we got robot guy, old-timey deep-sea diver-looking guy, lizard guy, who I think I saw get in a fight with Captain Kirk, Boba Fett, of course, thanks for coming, and... What are you supposed to be? Raggedy Andy! Get the f*** out of my bounty hunter meeting. Well, think about what a bounty hunter does on the regular. They go out hunting for people who jump bail. So you offer so much of that, you're going to get a whole lot of bounty hunters together. When Briscoe, Balor, and Socrates attend a bounty hunters convention on a secluded island, their fellow bounty hunters are mysteriously murdered one at a time. Ooh, so it's a murder mystery at a bounty hunters convention. Who would have guessed? As Nevada Cooper, we have Jonathan Sheck, who played Jimmy on That Thing You Do, and Richard Fenton in the remake of Prom Night. As Mountain McLean, because he does look like a mountain, we have Rex Lynn, who is best known as Detective Frank Tripp on CSI Miami. As a guy by the name of Edward Hayes, John Hertzler, who is the Alcalde on the new Zorro. The Alcalde Ignacio de Soto. Episode 17, Fountain of Youth. Briscoe, Balor, and Socrates locate Professor Ogden Coles and John Bly and finally discover the secrets of the mysterious orb. Playing Lillian Coles is Terry Ivins, who played Sam's sister Debbie on Wake, Rattle, and Roll, if you remember that far back. But she also played another Debbie in previous entry, Second Chance 1987 slash Boys Will Be Boys. And playing Lee Pow is... James Hong, known as Mr. Ping in the Kung Fu Panda movies, David Lopan in Big Trouble in Little China, and Gong Gong in the feel-good film of 2022, Everything Everywhere All at Once. Episode 18, Hard Rock. Briscoe and Balor save Balor's former girlfriend, a cafe owner, from a greedy criminal who demands that she pay him to protect her business from a gang of outlaws. Oh, episode 19, The Brooklyn Dodgers. Briscoe and Balor help two orphans claim a valuable inheritance. Oh, so this is nothing about the baseball team. Diesel, do you want to know more information about Roy Campanella? <laughs> two orphans from Brooklyn on their way to San Francisco inheriting $3 million. One of them, Tommy Trahern, played by Michael Cade, who we all remember as Sly Winkle on California Dreams. It was no hang time. Played Roy Shimamura, legendary actor, Clyde Kusatsu. Episode 20. Bye, Bly. Briscoe, Balor, Socrates, and a messenger from the future battle, John Bly, in a final confrontation for the orb. So we have a return of James Hong as Lee Pow, but we also have in an uncredited role as the cop near the bank vault, <laughs> Kane Hodder. We also have, as President Cleveland, a man by the name of Richard Hurd, who's best known as Mr. Wilhelm on Seinfeld, was also in several roles on Betty White's Off Their Rockers, if you can believe that. He wants off their rockers. Episode 
21, Ned Zed. Briscoe tries to prevent Ned Zed, an armor-clad criminal, from robbing a bank owned by one of the robber barons, Ethan Emerson. Playing Ned Zed is a man by the name of Casey Shamasco. He was one of Biff's gang in Back to the Future. And Back to the Future Part 2. Was he in Back to the Future Part 3? Probably not. He did have a regular role as Detective Dan Williams on Damages. Episode 22, Stagecoach. Briscoe escorts a beautiful Spanish spy to the Mexican border, unaware that she's being stalked by an unknown assassin. Playing Bobby Swan on this episode, Ari Spears from the Mad TV, right? Yeah, he was on Mad TV. And then we have, as Ms. Plowright, Eric Borman's mama and Pyramid All-Star, Deborah Jo Rupp. Fantastic. And then we have, as Dr. Milo, Timothy Leary from UHF. And in a credited cameo as Owen, Carlton Cuss. Episode 23, Wild Card. Briscoe Balor and Whip Morgan help Dixie and her sister Dolly recover their deed to a gambling casino in Reno, Nevada from an organized crime family. As Whip Morgan, Jeff Phillips, known as a B-2 pilot in Independence Day, play Enzio Tatalia, Louis Giambalvo, who played Major Cardagle in Real Genius and a witness in Airplane 2, the sequel, which we know you don't like, Chico. Episode 24, and Baby Makes Three. Briscoe, Balor, Whip, Dixie, and Lee Pao rescue the infant heir to the Chinese throne from a gang of deadly ninjas. Now, guys, you now have ninjas. This takes this show to a new level. We've had some wacky stuff, but now we got ninjas. Playing Chan... Si Ma from Martial Law and the original Rush Hour movie. And then we have playing the aide to Chan, Francois Chow, best known as a doctor in 17 different episodes of Lost. Episode 25, Bad Luck Betty. When Socrates is kidnapped, Briscoe, Balor, and Whip search for him with an accident-prone deputy sheriff in a small town haunted by a dead killer. Playing Diana Grayson, Jane Sibbett from Herman's Head and future entry Nick Prino licensed teacher, and playing Sheriff Hyde, somebody we may have talked about before, Jeff Doucette. So now we get into the... Series finale, which is a two-porter. First, High Treason Port 1. Briscoe and Bauer are arrested for treason after conspiring with a Mexican rebel's abduction of a newspaper baron's daughter. Now, guys, in this episode, playing Colonel March, Terry Bradshaw. But that's not the only football guy, but I'm going to save that for the next episode. Now, High Treason Port 2, the series finale. 
Briscoe Balor and their mercenary friends prevent a power-mad military general from causing a war between Mexico and the United States. And we have everybody in this episode, it looks like. It looks like they got everybody back. They got the return of President Cleveland, Richard Hurd. Of course, they got Terry Bradshaw. They got Ken Norton Jr. playing Aldo Butucci. Okay, that's not the big football name in this episode. Get ready, guys, because playing Mason Cowboy Dixon, that is this character's Christian name, Jim Harbaugh. So I got a question. Do you think Mason Cowboy Dixon hired somebody to steal like signals from like other bank robbers of when they were going to rob the banks? Note about this episode. Terry Bradshaw, NFL Hall of Fame class of 1989, plays Colonel March and leads his band of men, Ken Norton Jr., Jim Harbaugh, and Carl Banks as they go to capture Victor Rivers. Oh, Carl Banks! I didn't realize Carl Banks was in this, too. All of them are NFL players. He even draws an Exodo play for them to follow before they attack Rivers' wagon train. This is terrific. You have Terry Bradshaw... Ed Norton Jr., Jim Harbaugh, and Carl Banks in the final episode. What a great final episode. This wasn't made to promote anything on this network in this time period, in this portion of history. Coming up in the fall? No. Well, that's the series, everybody. So, how did this fail? How did this not get renewed? Well, guys... I have your answer. In the fall, this aired on Friday at 8 p.m. First, I got to get it out of the way. On NBC, you have a show called Against the Green, which is based on a book by Buzz Bissinger, starring a young Ben Affleck. And then on CBS, you have like two forgettable shows from 8 to 9 in it had to be you with Faye Dunaway and Robert Urich and a show called Family Album with David Crane and Morta Kaufman. They'd have a better show coming up on NBC in the following year. But on ABC, well, guys, what was the killer on Friday nights at 8 p.m. of many shows in the 90s? On ABC? Yeah, at 8 o'clock. Family Matters. Yep, Urkel. But here's the kicker. At 8.30, the first season of Boy Meets World. Now, let's be clear. It's not Boy Meets World yet. We're in the Minkus era of Boy Meets World. And we got Hippie Topanga. But you know what? It's still Boy Meets World. And everybody's loving Ben Savage. And Sean hasn't gone to the great takeout business in Philadelphia yet. But in the summer... During reruns, they moved it to Sunday nights at 7 o'clock. Now, here's what it went up against in the summer. So, you had special programming at 7 o'clock in the summer months on NBC. On ABC, you had America's Funniest Home Videos at 7 o'clock. And then at 7.30, and I can't believe this was still on at this point. Granted, it was in its last legs at this point. America's Funniest People at 7.30. But on CBS, 
60 minutes. But here's the thing, guys. On Fox, Briscoe County Jr. was the leaded program to this show starring um, David Duchovny and Jillian Anderson called The X-Files. Fox scheduled Briscoe County to be the big hit of that season. But it turns out that The X-Files was that big hit. And the general consensus from what I could gather was that Briscoe County was a show that was ahead of its time. We, with our primitive lizard brains, were not ready for it. But the good news is, the awesome theme song to Briscoe County Jr. would be recycled by NBC in 1997 for their Major League Baseball postseason coverage. I'm sorry, Mike, that I had to bring up that, considering what happened to your team in that postseason. I have a quote here from Auxiliary Magazine calling Briscoe County one of the greatest sci-fi western epics in television history, comparing it favorably to the more well-known sci-fi western shows Firefly and the Wild Wild West. Echoing that, the Christian Science Monitor said, Folks, there are so few comic sci-fi westerns, they should be celebrated, not canceled prematurely. If you do have a Bruce Campbell-sized itch that needs scratching, we have news for you. Because after a lot of fan lobbying specifically to the website tvshowsondvd.com. On July 18, 2006, Warner Home Video released The Adventures of Briscoe County Jr., the complete series on DVD in Region 1, with eight discs containing all 27 episodes, including commentary tracks from Bruce Campbell and Carlton Cuss, an interactive menu of Briscoe's signature references narrated by Campbell, the history of Briscoe County Jr. documentary, a feature called A Reading from the Book of Bruce and another gallery hosted by Campbell focusing on the gadgets from the show. Of course, if you cannot be bothered with cumbersome physical media, you can watch all of the episodes right now for a nominal fee on the streaming platform of your choice, be it Prime Video, Google Play, or Apple TV you buy it on iTunes slash Apple TV, it's $24.99. What can we say about Frisco County Jr.? It was poised to be the big hit for Fox in 93, but the X-Files stole all its thunder, and it became just a thing on TV. But Bruce Campbell, he did fine. And he's in that new thing for a maximum effort. This continued with Bruce yeah. Campbell? Yes. You know what the first episode was? What was it? Legends of the Hidden Temple. Oh, yeah. Just as a reminder, if you voted for that puppet game show or Sarah, we will cover those sometime in the new year. But we really want to get to that puppet game show because that fell one vote short. It's time to do the Russell Westbrook update. Russell Westbrook he can sure score triple doubles, but he sure as hell can't think straight when he's trying to make a pass. It's the Russell Westbrook update. 
So the Clippers right now, from the last time we spoke, are on a six-game winning streak. They beat the Warriors on December 2nd, pre-Draymond, like, getting into, you know. December 6th, they beat the Nuggets. December 8th, they beat the Jazz. December 11th, they beat the Trailblazers. December 12th, they beat the Kings. And December 14th, they beat the Warriors. I think that might have been the game where Draymond did the, uh, yeah. So here's the stat lines. On December 2nd, Russ had eight points, six rebounds. December 6th, nine points, eight rebounds. December 8th, five points, five rebounds. December 11th, 12 points, two rebounds. December 12th, eight points, seven rebounds. And then on Thursday, nine points, four rebounds, two assists. So the Clippers right now, as the time of recording this on December 15th, are in sixth place in the West at 14 and 10. Four and a half back of the top spot in the West held by the Minnesota Timberwolves. And hold on a second, because I talked about how Russ got into it with a fan, but you know what? Guess what, guys? The fans in LA, they're showing Russ some love again. They sure love Russ. Okay, who do the Clippers have coming up, Chico? Coming up tomorrow at 10.30, the New York Knicks go to town against the Clippers. Monday, December 18th, the Clippers take on the Pacers, and Wednesday, December 20th, the Clippers take on the Mavericks as part of a road trip. Oh, they're not playing on Christmas. That's a shame. No, they're playing on Boxing Day. Oh, that's true. They are Boxing Day against the Hornets. Yeah, they're going to box the Hornets. That's what they're going to do. Wow! Your fans are obsessed. Your fans are uh, maniacal. They're driven. And you get asked to sign a lot of breasts. Uh, now, that's something that rock stars are usually... It's usually just reserved for rock stars. But you asked to sign breasts, and I'm, I'm told that you're happy to do it. I should say... I do not ask to sign breasts. <laughs> that would be very, uh, very offensive yeah. uh, in this day and age. Yes. Sure, of course. Ma'am, can I just sign your boobie? Right. Yeah. It's not going to work. Right. Uh, I only do it when they offer their boobie up to me. Right. Right. And then they have opened the, the Pandora's box, if you will, of their boobie. Yeah. But, you know, it's not something you slap dash and do it's a no. sharpie it's a very specific pen it reacts with the skin's oils very specifically and sometimes it's prone to skip and then you've ruined your entire signature sure and if you go, go back and try and fill it in you Looks can bad. tell that that's what you did yeah so it's important to apply surface tension to the situation and i'm a lefty and it's, it works best if, if I am the guy to apply the surface tension to the boob. The left boob is my favorite one. Because that gives me full access from the right side. And normally you uh, apply pressure below the nipple. So that it's... Go right ahead. It's kind of... No, you go right ahead. Like if I was going to... Can you go that way a little bit? Yeah, yeah, sure, so sure, sure. The, 
I would apply pressure here. Yeah. Ow. And then up. Ow. So that this would be a, uh, there would be surface tension there, right? And, uh, yeah. Oh, you're going to maintain Oh, you're going to make one wardrobe guy really yeah. unhappy. So, oh, boy. Let me just say, I'm also very glad that I was never a baseball player. Signing that round shit, it, not, it's kind of weird. You're not signing. You don't need to put the surface tension on while you're talking to him. Wouldn't you like me to demonstrate how yeah, my, yeah, my, right my Sharpie doesn't skip? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Applying proper surface tension? <laughs> Lord. Uh, I'll buy your shirt. Let me, let me know if you feel any lumps. <laughs> and you're feeling pretty good. Thanks. Uh, Thank you. That's the, right. that's the essence of it. It's, uh, it's nothing I take lightly. No, no, no. Clearly, you've gone to engineering school. You've given this a lot of thought. Yeah, but that, that is right where the halter top strap <laughs> will be. So in the summertime, no one's going to see it. Or yeah. did you do that for workplace? Uh, no, because their favorite thing is to go, have you seen it? Ah. Episode 439, submission 2459. The David Letterman Holiday Film Festival. The David Letterman Holiday Film Festival was a series of specials that aired on NBC on November 30th, 1985 and November 28th, 1986 on the NBC television network. Well, guys, this special Christmas episode for you here at It Was a Thing on TV is going to be presented a little differently. This is mostly going to be entirely taped. This was not recorded on Skype or Zoom. So what we did was, David Letterman, in 1985 and 1986, did a series of holiday film festivals involving short films with some big-name celebrities. And these aired around the holiday season in 1985 and 1986. Roughly, I believe, the Friday after Thanksgiving or two days before Thanksgiving. Now, I looked at TVTango.com. The first special, I'm going to presume, because it aired on November 30th of 1985, I'm going to presume it aired on the slot where Friday Night Videos was after Carson on Friday. Because I don't think you know this, but Letterman used to air on NBC from Monday through Thursday, and Friday would be just for Friday Night Videos. And I guess maybe at some point, maybe in the late 80s, early 90s, they added a fifth night to Letterman. Or so I, maybe, maybe I'm mistaken. Maybe it was when Conan came in later on and Friday Night Videos was getting like long in the tooth. Maybe they added the fifth night of late night. But all the while, I presume that this aired, the first one at least, where Friday Night Videos usually was. And the second one on November 28, 1986, was a primetime special at 10 o'clock. So we have some various short films involving such luminary names as Catherine O'Hara, Bette Midler, Harry Shearer, Michael Keaton, Dave and Paul themselves, Jonathan Winters, Chris Elliott, Diane Sawyer, and Michael J. Fox. Now, the specials themselves are not on YouTube per se, but I'm going to presume that all the short films from the two specials are in clips, at least the segments in full on YouTube. And the Letterman YouTube channel has actually put at least five of them online. So in the description of this episode, we are going to have 
each short listed along with the YouTube channel it's credited with at the bottom in the description on our Podbean page. So you'll get an idea of at least the tone of the special when you're watching the whole thing. But we're going to start with Chico with the first segment from Andrea Morton and Catherine O'Hara. And this is a video about a very sensitive subject for a woman, PMS. What is your opinion on PMS? PMS. Yes, that's premenstrual syndrome, isn't it? <laughs> what is your opinion on PMS? That is the question asked by Andrea Martin and Catherine O'Hara as they portray filmmakers Mary Marcus and Hannah Champion illustrating the monthly cycles of a woman's reproductive health as frankly as is allowable on this broadcast. And I'll tell you right now, their hair and their staging is the least awkward thing about this video right now. They're trying to talk about it without really, you know, talking about it. And it's getting very, very, very awkward. But let's be honest, I can look at Catherine O'Hara all day. And apparently Andrea Martin cannot. Because while Andrea Martin's dancing around the whole ordeal... Catherine O'Hara is just getting right to it. So apparently PMS not only affects a woman, but anyone within a mile radius. And apparently everybody who has it is a victim. Although... From a completely medical standpoint, it is a completely normal process that a woman goes through every month. And remember, I am a medical professional. I can say this. That's putting it very simple, that it affects your mind. That's basically PMS in as bare a bones as you can make while making a joke of it. And we go into this uh, day in the life of uh, a character by the name of Anna Rico, who is played by Catherine O'Hara. She's a crossing guard, and she is very loud about it. And now she wants to throw hands. Okay, so the next question is, is PMS a good defense for murder? Again, I am a medical professional. I am not a legal professional, so I cannot answer that question. We're back to our original framing device, which is a white room with Andrea Martin and Catherine O'Hara going absolutely crazy. Really 
and in Andrea's case, getting incredibly drunk. And now we're just relaxing. And now here we have an actual simulation. Uh, Andrea and I'm, I believe this is, who is this? I have absolutely no idea who this person is. But Andrea is with a gentleman and they're having relations. And within a hidden camera, Andrea is going absolutely crazy. I think she's dressed like her lesbian character. No, no, wait, no, I'm getting ahead of her. I'm getting ahead of myself. And now we're going into a Calvin Klein commercial. There you go. Now she's dressed as her lesbian character, Dutch Leonard. Uh, if you've ever seen SCTV, you know what I'm talking about. But yeah, this is basically a public service announcement in the form of a Calvin Klein commercial. Kind of. What's the word? Oh. It is. <laughs> And, and and she's basically uh, making this any more awkward than it absolutely has to be. And yeah. I was afraid to ask. Now, somewhere between Christmas and being buried alive is PMS. PMS. No, you're not crazy. And that's basically the crux of the film. Um... And I'm looking at uh, Andrea and Catherine in the wigs in the white room, and believe it or not, this is the least awkward thing about the whole piece. And now they're fighting. This is going to end well. <laughs> okay. Well, there. that's it. Um, Andrea Martin has one more question. Do you think that we should be making a film on PMS? That is a good question that I will leave to smarter individuals to answer. The end. The next short film is going to be reviewed by Mike, and it's from the divine one herself, Miss Bette Midler, and it's called Angst on a Shoestring. My first video is called Angst on a Shoestring. This is somewhat notable because the person who produced it is, of all people, Bette Midler. Oh, okay, that's a very interesting transition. It goes from color to black and white. And I was gonna try a very smoky today. black and white. Why bother? 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 Maybe I'll get a lift. Why bother? Maybe I'll get a job. Why bother? Maybe I'll empty an ashtray. 
Six months later, you gotta do it again. Why bother? Do you know that the only museum in Las Vegas is run by Liberace? Why bother? Lady Di finally came to the United States. She brought 90 trunks, 10 hairdressers, three makeup artists. She went to J.C. Penney. I said, Lady Di, why bother? There are 88 keys on that piano. This chump knows five. Why bother? I have a star named after me on Hollywood Boulevard. It's under a fire hydrant. Why bother? focuses his fashion spotlight on another part of the female anatomy. I have fatty deposits on all of them. Why bother? in any drugstore in the United States is bigger than the biggest meat department in all of the USSR. Tell me, do we as a nation smell that bad? <laughs> Why bother? for 29 days. I took a high colonic every day. I lost three pounds. My animist said, why bother? Dr. Ruth. Why bother? I had a boyfriend once. He said to me, how come you never tell me when you're having an orgasm? I said to him, you're never around. So why bother? I contemplated suicide. I went right to my medicine chest. I mixed Midol with diet pills. I had my period six times in one day. I don't know why I bothered. 
Hey, what's the matter? Did I say something wrong? Where are you going? Wait a minute, I'll cheer up. Maestro, play something seasonal. Deck the halls with boughs of holly. Fa la 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 la. Tis the season to be jolly. Fa. And it should be noted that as the camera panned out of the scene away from the uh, speaker, it went from black and white to color. Why bother? Next, we go back to Chico with a short film from Paul Schaefer and the world's most dangerous band called Dress Cool. Dress Cool. This is available on the official Letterman YouTube page. If you scroll to a minute 30 in, that's where it begins. And that's where we learn that the director of this piece is Meryl Marco. And according to my research, she's an author and a writer and an occasional stand-up comedian still working and living to this day. And apparently she was dating David Letterman at the time, so she may have gotten an in that way. But yeah, uh, we're going a minute 30 into it, and this is, well, this is written by Paul Schaefer and the world's most dangerous band. We're going to go ahead and play it right now. It is similar to, but legally distinct from story-type music videos of the mid-1980s with new wave bands looking for one more hit on MTV. We have Paul Schaefer in a headpiece, who kind of looks like um, Rick Ocasek, but not really. And we have Will Lee on the bass, Sid McGinnis on guitar, and Steve Jordan on drums. Sid McGinnis was actually at the top of the sketch. And we're at a bar now. We have this lovely lady. We have, oh God, Steve Gordon. Sid McGinnis is on guitar with this uh, nerdy getup. And um, speaking of nerdy getups, here's this guy with a nerdy getup. And his lady friend basically wants him to, you know, dress cool. Come on. He, she even... Makes a point to mention it. Gotta dress cool. Gotta dress like this band right here. Especially Steve Jordan. He's the coolest. And Oh, speaking of cool, it's Larry Bud Melman in a trench coat, ladies and gentlemen. And then we have a quick cut of the band dressed as punks. And more Larry Bud Melman. All right, verse two, Steve Jordan on the drums singing, and that is not his grandfather. I mean, it could be, but it's not. Actually, uh, Paul Schaefer looks more like Mark Mothersbaugh, but whatever. But you, I, I'm kind of wondering, did everybody in the 80s have an oversized... Um, an oversized suit 
Actually, now that I think about it, Paul Schaefer looks like Elvis Costello. There we go. Paul Schaefer looking like Elvis Costello. And there's Laurie Bud Melman again. And now we have a, a whole take where Paul's like, you know what? Screw the hairpiece. I'm going on natural. And now the rest of the band is joining the guy at the bar with Larry Bud Melman. And for some reason, they're all dressed like the Beatles now. And now we have, uh, who is this? Will Lee playing the bass. And we're doing the whole Peter Gabriel stop motion thing where he's deciding what to wear by simply thinking about it. Which, you know, we all wish we could do. Anyway, uh, this features all the tropes of it, some of the good music videos of the 80s and a few of the bad ones. But all of the awesome of the band. Plus, you know, Larry Bud Melman's in it. They could have released it in 1986. They could have had a radio hit. They didn't, but you know what? That's just fine. By the way, check out this lick. Ain't it something? Anyway, Paul... Paul insists in interest in introing the video. Okay, now Steve looks like a Christmas tree. Is that on purpose? I don't know. But anyway, Paul insists this is not a music video, but it has things in common with the video. It's a good watch if you want to see Paul in a new wave hairpiece and the band dressed like the Beatles for some reason. And also uh, Steve dressed like a Christmas tree. And also Larry Bud Melman in various forms of dress. And a cat in a dress. And there are the Beatles again. Is that David Letterman? I want to say that is. I don't know. I want to say that looks like Letterman. May not be Letterman, but it kind of sort of looks like it. But yeah, really cool stuff there. Good watch. We want to see Paul in a new wave hairpiece. I can confirm that, yes, it in fact was David Letterman at the end of that short in the music video of Dress Cool. So now... I'm going to go to myself presenting Harry Shear's segment for the 85 Letterman Holiday Film Festival. All right, so now we are going to go on to Harry Shear's short film for the David Letterman Holiday Film Festival. And you all know who Harry Shear is. There's no point of me trying to explain it. This one is called The Making of You Wouldn't Believe Our World. And it's featuring some very special guests. Christopher Guest, Michael McKeon, and Marsha Strasmid. So, here we go with You Wouldn't Believe Our World. You know, Michael, so much is changing all around us these days. I know what you mean, Marsha. Change is all around us. But it's lucky for us there are some things that do stay the same. You're right. Like the autumn leaves in New England. Right. And the Yanks in the World Series. Right. And good old Majesco Industries. That's the... Wrong. 
Earlier this year, Majesco Industries, a large multinational conglomerate, changed its name to MJI Incorporated. To celebrate this change and to inform its thousands of customers, suppliers, and employees, MJI commissioned a musical film, You Wouldn't Believe Our World, starring Marcia Strassman and Michael McKeon. We thought you might like to see how this film was made. Lunch. You know, Chip, I don't, I don't know if I should say anything, but uh, the Yanks were not in the World Series last year. I don't think it's going to matter. I don't think anyone will you sure? remember. Anyway, they're going to be looking at you. They're not going to listen to what you say, you know? Yeah. See, we were one of the first multinationals to uh, totally abandon the old house organ concept and to opt instead for the video presentation philosophy. So, now we enter a situation where, obviously, we've grown a little bit too big for our corporate nomenclature or name, and uh, from the idea of all the many things that we do and the fact that we are, in fact, a true multinational, that is to say, our funds never settle in any given country, we evolved and refined the concept of You Wouldn't Believe Our World. You wouldn't believe our world, and that's why we're changing our name. So many dichotomous interests we do. The butcher, the baker, the missile maker, the Polak, the Irishman, the Jew. Had trouble believing too, but we want you. I've never done uh, an industrial film before. I think everybody in the business has at one time or another done uh, industrial shows, you know, like little Broadway musicals, except you're playing to a room full of uh, jewelers or what have you. But a film, I, I tell you, the first couple of days around that set, the electricity was almost as intense as it gets in a real movie. Okay, we're gonna try it again. And... Scooch into position. from everything else it's it's a learning experience for me you know I'm finding out all about this incredible corporation I mean it starts out as majestic fittings and fasteners and before you know it it's like this gigantic amazing thing I think when people have to sit there and watch you you feel like giving them just that little bit more you know what I mean Five, six, seven, eight. Bosk, bosk, bosk. Bosk, bosk, bosk. Bosk, bosk, bosk. Die. Bosk, bosk, bosk. Yeah. We'll do that again, and once more, and we'll.
have this, okay? At the end, uh, let's do something like this. Bar implements. Yeah, like a sledgehammer. Just bring it down. We want these people to know what Bach is. I mean, it's not just nothing, okay? <sighs> you know, Marsha, MJI is a lot more than just another multinational conglomerate. <laughs> yes, Michael. It's a corporation with a lot on its mind. <laughs> you gotta have fun. Uh, I loved Marsha, and the crew that we worked with were really, really special people. Just to shoot at American defense mechanisms, they all had to get top security clearance. But I think that family feeling that we had for those two weeks really shows through in the emotional honesty we were able to convey. At least I hope so. If you've ever listened to a show with Harry Shearer or watched This Is Spinal Tap, yeah, you get an idea of what you would have expected from this short. Uh, Very good. I liked Michael McKee in this. I liked Christopher Guest as the director guy, kind of going, it's kind of like a ham in this kind of segment, but this was a very funny segment there from Harry Shearer and the Spinal Tap people, as you can expect. So, I give this short on the Greg Diener rankings. Now, the way I do my system is I do it Dave Meltzer rating a match in the Tokyo Dome style. So, I'm going to rate this segment here for the David Letterman Holiday Film Festival at about uh, I'm going to rate it five and a half stars out of four. Yeah. Five and a half stars out of four. That's my ranking. So now let's go to our final segment from the 85 Letterman Holiday Film Festival with Chico looking at Michael Keaton's 
but I'm happy. This is another one of those films that originates from Letterman's official YouTube account. You can go there, watch it in its entirety, including the intro. But right now, we're just going to get right into it. This is called But I'm Happy. Robert De Niro, Meryl Streep, John Gielgud, and Robert Redford. By the way, this this begins, I want to say, three minutes in. You go three minutes in. And it says right there, Robert De Niro, Meryl Streep, John Gilgood, and Robert Redford will not appear in this film written, produced, and directed by Michael Keaton, who, by 1986, pretty much paid his dues, honed his comedic chops. This was after Mr. Mom, but before Batman, so make your own little uh, mental timeline there. Uh, fun fact... Michael Keaton and David Letterman actually worked together. They're actually old friends. Um, if I'm not mistaken, they were on the Mary show. I believe um, 13 Week Theater had a really good, really good doc about that. But the question here is, who is the real Michael Keaton? Is it this guy who's strutting around the place in his bathrobe and dragging a smoke, acting like he owns the place? Let's go to his agent. Apparently he wants his agent to count his money or count his women. Well, it turns out Mike has no money. Mike has no women. Mike has no car. And apparently he doesn't remember where his house is because... As his agent will say, he doesn't have a house. So there you go. Mike has no hit movies, no house, no car, no women, no money. Oh, gosh. What are you going to do? Because he hasn't had a home for months. He has no home, no cars, no money. It's gone. It's over. What's Michael Keaton to do? How about an actual job? Like a nine to five, you go in at nine, punch out at five, and do an honest laborer's work. Just so happens that... Oh, is it me or was that song bad to the bone in every 80s movie ever. Anyway, he was looking to be a psychologist, but instead we have a person in charge of fish entrails. And he's working with this guy who obviously looks like he's escaped an asylum. He thinks Mike is you know, researching a new role. He, he says it's too complicated to explain. Just so happens, the, the, the wacko doesn't work here. He volunteers here. And Mike needs a new job because this is absolutely um, 
I don't know how demeaning this could possibly get. Not only is he dumping entrails, but he's working with a guy who wants to shoot rats. And all he can say is, I bet your name and the word state hospital come up in the same sentence a lot, don't they? All right, so Mike's looking for some escape from the whole fish hauling thing here. How about Bill and Ernie's carpet mania sale? Unfortunately, he can't exactly hit his marks, especially when it comes to dropping his pants. So remember, it's not I'm dropping my pants for you, as I'm dropping my pants for you. Can't even get that mark right. He, we must be maniacs. So he has to act like he's a maniac. And so doing take two, and um, this guy is back. This guy from the fish market basically saying he needs two squirrels next to him. And yeah, he's basically following Mike around. So now he's at a bar, he's getting drunk, and what's the worst thing that could possibly happen? It's that Phil and Ernie's Carpet Mania commercial with the crazy guy as the pitch man. I'll bite the head off of any rodent to close the deal. Eddie wrote it, so bring the kids. I'll be no, do not bring the kids. Do not bring the kids. That is a red flag. That is a timeout. We are not bringing the kids. So here we are on the Boulevard of Broken Dreams, Sunset Boulevard. He is selling combs, celebrity combs. This is how this is how far he's gone. Selling. Co Tony Curtis's combs. <laughs> so Tony Curtis's comb from the Mod Squad in order to get by. Tony Curtis. So Hollywood Babylon. What happens when a Hollywood big shot is resorted to selling combs after losing a carpet gig? Tony Curtis. Uh, so Mike is just walking around. He is absolutely um, confused. Runs into Ron Howard. He's like, hi, bye. I thought I, I watched this before. I thought that was the homeless guy. No, that's Ron Howard. So now he's at Father Tito's retreat for really confused guys who like to delude themselves into thinking they're actually complex and interesting. And that's where he's doing this interview from. He is now a monk who has taken a vow of silence. And yet he is interviewing. He just wants one second to finish his vow. Hey, I just want to finish the interview. And he also wants to get in a good word, probably back with Ron Howard. 
<laughs> and, and he's back to his old self, basically saying, this interview's over. But hey, at least he's happy. So that does it for the segments from the 1985 Letterman Holiday Film Festival. And we'll get to the 1986 Letterman Holiday Film Festival segments right after these Christmas holiday season era appropriate messages. I hope you join us New Year's Eve. We will have hats and horns uh, for everyone. Uh, Laura Branigan will be here. B.B. King will also be here. And, of course, hats and horns. Wednesday on St. Elsewhere. Will dream research turn into a medical nightmare? Kind of malarkey really singes my drawers. Perhaps more than any other time of year, this is the season when millions of people discover Polaroid cameras do what no other kind of camera can do. What's that? Happy holidays from Polaroid. Tuesday, it's a special Christmas Eve A-Team when Mr. T goes home to protect his mother. Nobody mess with my mama. Then the Riverside guys chase a mermaid. Yo, ho, ho, and a bottle of rum. <laughs> and can Remington Steele save a hooker? We prefer to be called love brokers. From a hitman? Not from where I'm standing. Tuesday. Soap Opera Digest polled its readers, and Days of Our Lives was voted the most popular daytime drama. We won! See why Days of Our Lives will excite you. So, we got the gift? We went to the J.C. Penney holiday sale. And? We got something to help my mother in the kitchen. A cook. A microwave on sale. And for Jennifer? Mm, beautiful robes. She'll love them. On sale? I love them already. And blankets for the twins. Great. Now they'll never get out of bed. And they will for their new Fox Sportswear. So, what do you get me? Gift wrap. You better get busy. Uh -huh. The J.C. Penney holiday sale. Hurry, before it's all wrapped up. Friday, join the kids from the Cosby Show. Punky Brewster, Silver Spoons, and Give Me a Break on an all-new holiday treat when Andy Williams and the NBC Kids search for Santa. Then, Mr. T, Emmanuel Lewis, and Ty Babylonia and Randy Gardner bring holiday cheer in a Christmas dream. Friday. Welcome back. So now we resume with the 1986 David Letterman Holiday Film Festival. And our first subject comes from the man himself, David Letterman. Here's Mike looking at Dave's entry in the 1986 Holiday Film Festival called Feeling in Love. This next video is entitled Feeling in Love, and it was produced by the one and only David Letterman. It looked like another boring Friday night. For months, Paul had been trying to set me up with the right girl. I never dreamed that tonight, she would walk into my life. A party for Schaefer? Hi, Wendy. Oh, hi, hi Paul. Sorry, sorry we're late. Oh, I just got Listen, here. Listen, Dave, Dave. Uh, Wendy, this is Dave. And, uh, hi, Dave, David. This is Wendy. Hey, it's Hal. I should wonder what he's doing here. Who's Hal? Oh, that's Hal Gurney. He's the director of the show and one of Dave's closest friends. Come on. Hi, Hal. Having dinner alone? Dave? 
Oh, actually, I'm waiting for my wife. It's our 25th wedding anniversary. Oh, congratulations. Thank you. You know, uh, I don't think I ever met Mrs. Hal Gurney. Really? No. Here she is now. What a knockout. My feet are killing me. This place. Dear, I don't think you've ever met Dave. No, I don't think you've ever met him. A perfect Hello. woman, nobly planned, to warm, to comfort, and command. What was that, Dave? Wordsworth. Ode to a woman with a rose. Oh, you must be interested in flowers. Has Hal talked to you about our garden? Uh, no, he hasn't. Uh, uh, let me join you for dinner and, and you can tell me about the garden. But Dave, what about Paul and your friend? Shut up, Hal. Aphids, red spiders, Japanese beetles, slugs, we had them all. The slugs got into the corn, not the golden bantam, but the buttered corn. The corn turned out fine, though. But you know what I'm proudest of? My tomatoes. Oh, uh, please, please, tell me about the tomatoes. Dave's really interested well, in his gardening, isn't he? I've how. never seen him this way before. Well, the tomatoes came in bigger this year than ever before, and there wasn't a single slug on them. The only problem is I had to give most of them away because my husband won't eat anything with tomatoes in it. Your husband? Yes, hell. <laughs> oh. <laughs> right. Hal says he can't eat tomatoes because of his sensitive stomach, but I think he just doesn't like my cooking. Doesn't like your cooking? Doesn't like your cooking. And you, Hal Gurney. I better go talk to him. Waiter. Dave, what has gotten into you? What's the matter with you? Are you blind? Hal is no good for that woman. I love her. Love her? She's already married to Hal. They've been married 25 years. To me, they look pretty happy. Oh, yeah? Well, Hal Gurney does not have a monopoly on happiness. I want my share. And I'll tell you something else. I don't care what it takes. I'm going to make that woman mine. <laughs> and have acknowledged your consent before us. Now, by virtue of the authority vested in me by the laws of the state of New York, I pronounce you man or wife. You may kiss the bride. All right, I did it. I married Mrs. Hal Gurney. Yeah. Yeah, you did. But at what cost? By stealing Hal's wife, you have alienated everyone on the show. Why do you think that nobody came to your wedding? Paul, that's not true. Look, here's Biff Henderson, one of our stage managers. Hi, Biff. Dave, here's a little gift from everyone on the crew. <laughs> I don't care what you people think. For once in my life, I'm happy. Come on, honey. Welcome to honey, the uh, program. Boy, honey, wake up. The show's on. I'm about to do something really funny. <laughs> You're not going to see through the honeymoon, are you? Come on. Wake up. Yeah, look, see what I did here? I pretended like the joke didn't work, and then I made a really goofy face, and I got a huge laugh. That was pretty good, huh? <laughs> you know, now that you're my wife, you'll learn all the tricks that I use to make the show a big hit. Doesn't the director have a lot to do with it? Well, what is the deal? You've been talking about Hal all night. Just relax and watch the show, please. Ladies and gentlemen, as you all know, I was married today to Mrs. Hal Gurney, who uh, divorced our director so she could run off with me.
can, can we get a shot of Hal now in the control room? Hal. You know, I, I think we've seen enough. This is not going to work. I know what you're thinking. I should leave right now and go back to Hal. Oh, no. No, no. What I was thinking is, tomorrow when I get to work, I'll fire Hal. No. I think my idea is better. Goodbye, Dave. Oh, no. No, just... No, no. Please, no. After Mrs. Gurney left me, I couldn't get her out of my mind. I was a wreck. I felt like I would never laugh again. Then one day, I happened to pass a movie theater. I saw what was playing. Chaplin. City Lights. Good old Charlie. He was my idol. And he was there to cheer me up when I needed him most. I had to go in. Of course, I'd already seen City Lights, so I went to see what was playing in Cinema 2. It was Porky's Five. And let me tell you, I never laughed harder in my life. The movie put the world back in perspective for me. I felt good about myself again. I could go on living. Just for the record, there was no Porky's 5. From what I can tell, there is the original Porky's, Porky's 2, and Porky's Revenge. Well, at least we know what Dave fell in love with in the end. He fell in love with Porky's. This next entry is called My Day with the Stars and is produced by the legendary comedian, Mr. Jonathan Winters, who he talked all the way back around two years ago with Davis Rules. So here we go. It's Jonathan Winters, My Day with the Stars. <laughs> Wouldn't you know it? I, I just bought this car from that guy. Ran over him. I'm sorry. Come on inside. I want you to meet some of my friends. They've been standing around all day, part of the night. Attractive bunch of people. Allow me, comrade, to introduce myself. I am Alexov Boryash Kashetka. These are my cookies. I have a place not far from here, maybe 200 kilometers, you know, up near Petrograd. And I have Alexov's uh, cookie place. How about a cookie? Just one. Incidentally, four cookies for the one horse. We're not going to ride it, comrade. I want to eat it. <laughs> There's no door to stay here. <laughs> What are you looking at? Everybody is always staring. Ah, uh, the wolves. I love to mock them. They won't bother me because I have cookies. Yes, a rose. Rose is a rose is a rose. My father used to say that. He wore a dress similar to yours. Ah, she seems so still. They confirm it. They want to attack you. They feel that you're the big white person, and once they get rid of you, they can get uh, Wyoming back for sure, Colorado, and uh, tight standby on Iowa. 
Okay, lady, let's go over it again. As I understand it, you want to go down to 1216 Silvano Street. I never heard of it. I've lived in the... Oh, gee, what a... Ooh, ooh. You know, you people get into drugs. I don't know, you got into potato chips. You got into guacamole or whatever that stuff is. Oh, oh. I've never seen eyes like that, except on a ping-pong table. Normally, that gets guys like you. Well, I understand that at noon, they'll be coming to get me. About thir 13 guys um, Sunday a week beat up on me in the mail car. That's where I work. Uh, and uh, so all the ribs on this side were fractured, and these were actually taken out. And I just don't know whether to, you know, send to the VA or what for, you know, artificial ribs. I'll, I'll be there. Incidentally, you need an extra gun? I got one. I've never had a chance to use it. I've been held up 46 times. It was, uh, my standard pose is this. Well, that was my day with the stars. Thanks for joining us. Did I say that was my day? Imagine that whole day being wrapped into three and a half minutes. That's all they'd give me. My standard pose is this. All right, I'm going to try to explain it since obviously you're not going to capture it in the audio portion. Now all the links to all the shorts are going to be in the description, so you'll have an idea of seeing it in the video portion. But when we first see Jonathan in the Wax Museum, inside the Wax Museum after the introduction, he's giving cookies to this, uh, these Russian, I'm presume they're Russian, these Russian wax dummies, which obviously they don't take the offer of the cookies because, duh. And then we see, like, him giving, like, I guess a flower to, like, this lady wax statue, and then we see him with John Wayne, Pilgrim. Unfortunately, it's not Happy Thanksgiving. So he can't wish the John Wayne wax statue a Happy Thanksgiving, Pilgrims. And then, I guess Jonathan's pretending to be a bus driver while he's next to the wax thing of what I presume is to be Regan from The Exorcist when she's doing the head turn, when she's super, super ass-possessed, and it's turning her head while Jonathan's like, Ugh. And then we see Jonathan on a wax bridge of the Enterprise with wax statues of the crew of the Starship Enterprise from Star Trek, and then he's talking with a wax sheriff. And, yeah, that's basically it. So let me see. On the, the Dave Meltzer... <laughs> Uh, ish scale from the Tokyo Dome, I will give this a three and a half stars out of five. That sounds about right. Now it's off to Mike for our next segment from Chris Elliott. Next up is Chris Elliott, A Television Miracle, produced by, you got it, Chris Elliott. February 12th, 1982. New York City. A celebrity-studded crowd turns out for the premiere of a new performer on the popular television show Late Night. This night, they will witness a miracle. 
Join us now as we go behind the scenes and experience together the magic and the mystery of Chris Elliott, Television Miracle. But until that wonderful and glorious day, I'll be right here, watching you, making your life a living hell. I'm watching you, Dave. I see you. That always cracks me up. Hi, I'm George Takei. You know me as Helmsman Sulu on Star Trek. On board the Enterprise, we encountered life forms of many different kinds, but none as astonishing as a computerized marionette that acts as David Letterman's comedic foil. <laughs> I worked with Elliot in Arthur Miller's stunning production of Death of a Salesman at the Winter Garden last year. It wasn't until a week after the show had closed that a friend of mine informed me that Elliot, this magnificent feeling performer I so admired and with whom I'd spent many hours on stage and off, was not human. That's it. Well, not human, perhaps, <laughs> but certainly alive. <laughs> Bringing Elliot to life is a job of its creator, Gail Nelson, who has been designing and building puppets since he fled his native New Zealand some 30 years ago. <laughs> you did a lot of work in films and then television in the early 60s. Yes, uh... You know, I designed the hook for Captain Hook in the original Broadway production of Peter Pan. That was really my first special effect. Of course, Shelley Winters was mine. But that one never really caught on. I don't know why. I, I guess I made it a little too big. It scared people. Chris is kind of a conglomeration of many ideas, actually. For wisdom and humanity, I molded his eyes after Einstein. His thick blonde hair is identical to that of George C. Scott. And for his chin, I did something special. I used this golf club, which actually broke when I was sanding it, but I used it anyway because I like the concave effect. Very interesting. Very interesting. Rehearsal is a painstaking and complicated procedure. Every facial expression and body movement must be memorized and practiced to time perfection. Well, kids, good work. I think the cramped quarters often take their toll on the operators. I want some air. Oh, sure, I want some air. Most of whom were recruited from a unique unit of the Israeli Tank Corps. Boston, listen, here, let me clear you down. Put on the air conditioning. That's a good one, Dave. That's a good one, Dave. Each of Chris's lives must be created by engineers in the studio. That's a good one, Dave. First, the voice of fight promoter Don King is recorded. That's a good one, Dave. And then modulated. That's a good one. And mixed with other sounds until it matches the creator's vision. Dave. That's a good one, Dave. On the soundstage, Dave and the animatron are about to shoot a dramatic fight scene for an upcoming episode of The Fugitive Guy. Well, there's a fight going on. Go ahead, go ahead on. Get a track. There's one, two, one, two, one, two. Quiet! And action! You don't want to be a smoke, do you? 
The scene is not working. The host refuses to work any further with the full-scale animatron. But the crucial fight sequence remains to be filmed. With time running short, the decision is made to do the scene another way. First, close-ups are isolated and shot using individual hydraulic limbs. Then for the long shots, the entire studio is reproduced in one-sixth scale. And miniatures of Dave and Chris are carefully photographed, employing a technique called stop-motion animation. With careful editing, image enhancement, audio sweetening, and sound effects, the illusion of an actual fight scene is flawlessly recreated. In this scene, as in every scene, you would swear that Chris Elliott is a living, breathing person. Whether as the fugitive guy, the regulator guy, the conspiracy guy, or the guy under the seats, or just plain Chris Elliott, this versatile machine makes us laugh, but also makes us think. And that makes us feel good about ourselves. It boggles the mind. Perhaps in the future, all performers will be like Chris. For the sake of the show and all mankind, we can only hope so. I'm George Decay. Until the next time, Warp Factor 2. about Chris Elliott from Get a Life and his other antics on uh, Dave's shows. That truly is one of the most Chris Elliott pieces I've ever seen. That was truly bizarre, but also at the same time, truly hilarious. Real genius. Plus also, I should mention, they did actually have people from Late Night on that segment, including... Gerard Mulligan, one of our favorites. Next, we're going to go back to Chica with Diane Sawyer's shocking expose. Our final entry is Diane Sawyer's shocking expose, and it begins with a letter. Dear Diane, this is a letter to Diane Sawyer from NBC. Dear Diane, is a guy who dresses up in Velcro suits and spends network time on stupid pet tricks funny? 
I don't think he's funny. Yet every night in that studio, they laugh and laugh. Without that studio audience, he'd be another Mr. Rogers. Wise up, kid. There's a story under your nose. Sincerely, Bob Wright. Now, I don't know who Bob Wright is, but that's not important to this story. What is important is Diane Sawyer getting down to the bottom of this. So, she calls together the forces that made her a name on 60 Minutes in 1986 to file this report. And it begins at the end of a taping of Late Night with David Letterman. And a truck is sending the audience home. Rumor has it, home is Harrison, New Jersey. Nobody knows where Harrison is. This guy's in the background doing God knows what. Nobody, nobody has an answer for Diane Sawyer. Nobody has an answer as to where uh, David Letterman's audience goes when the show is over. Except Harrison, New Jersey. So she goes to Harrison, New Jersey, interviews whoever she can find, including this nun who's A, never heard of Harrison, New Jersey, and B, never heard of David Letterman. Uh, so you figure that one out. Then we have the police of Harrison, New Jersey. And immediately I just want to say, welcome to Audit the Audit, where we sort out the who and what and the right and wrong. Oh, wait, there's the audience right there. And we do a quick cut and, hey, look, it's Teddy Bradley, ladies and gentlemen. So back at Harrison, Diane Sawyer finds a lead and... Her videographer finds Larry Bud Melman making laundry in a storm cellar. <coughs> and after much, after much hunting, we find the audience. They're taking their dog out for a walk they're playing frisbee they're being taught stupid audience tricks by this dog diane is about to make her approach she's making her approach she's going to the lawn and oh nope, everybody's alarmed don't be alarmed it's just the media it's okay and now everybody's just staying there gauging the situation and Diane Sawyer has one question for the audience. Why do you think Letterman is funny? She doesn't have an answer. When did this all begin? How did this all begin? Still radio silence. And apparently it hasn't happened to her since those two weeks in Terre Haute. Which, which elicits a response. Asbury Park, response. Billings, Montana, response. 
Muncie, Indiana. Give it up for Muncie, Indiana. So now that Diane Sawyer has the secret sauce, I guess the real question is, well, well, uh, the only thing I can say is, Andy? Boy, did you ever wonder why some people always have to be the center of attention? Before we get any angry responses on social media from our listeners, Bob Wright is the CEO of NBC at the time, which is what Diane was referring to in that letter. Once again, Jeopardy bronze medalist Chico Alexander. So the last one is going to be from Michael J. Fox called The Iceman Hummuth. Now, 1986, one year past Back to the Future, and obviously Michael J. Fox is like this king of NBC at this time with family ties. So this is going to be something. And of course, he's Canadian, so it's going to involve hockey because, duh. Now, this is going to be different from what I've done for my previous two and what is similar to Mike's things. I'm going to do what Chico has done while doing this. I'm going to be watching it while giving my commentary during this, like a DVD commentary track. So let's go with the Iceman Hummeth. Oh, we got a Zamboni. And there's Michael. Visitors with a crappy ass sign there. Oh, one guy smashed his stick on a Pepsi machine. And I think Michael's in the uh, wrong room here. Oh, but there's Mike. I love that those uniforms there, they kind of like remind me of the Minnesota North Stars jerseys. You know, the... um. The green with the yellow. Oh, look. He's got... Michael's got a picture of Dave, a sign picture. Oh, it's Howie! Howie Mandel! And he's carrying a jack strap. I bet that bet that scared Howie there, because Howie's kind of a germaphobe. Ladies and gentlemen. Yes, we're ready. And this team's ready. Oh, they just threw a dozen pucks out on the ice. Oh, Michael's getting ready with the, the sympathy of violiners. Meanwhile, the other Michael is on the ice with his hockey team. Oh, looks like they're opponents here. 
I mentioned that his Michael's team has the uh, Minnesota North Stars style jerseys. This other team has the Winnipeg Jets style jerseys with the uh, the red and the white and the blue with the white being the primary color. Let's go! Baseball! And now everyone's fighting and they're getting on the ice. Oh, this is fantastic. And now Michael's looking at the other Michael and they're just looking at the uh the symphony. And now they're just oh they're everyone's now getting in the dance. This is kind of reminiscent of the end of Slapshot. Except there's no stripping at the end of this. Now Michael's pushing one of the people in the orchestra. Now now the orchestra is getting into fighting. Wow, this is taking a turn. Yeah. Oh, Ben. I gotta say, that was very fantastic. <laughs> it was a very avant-garde thing, but I do like the twist that you're expecting the hockey fight, but no, it's the orchestra having the hockey fight, so bravo. Well done, Michael. Well done. Well, those are the specials. Now, I obviously don't have any information about the first Letterman Holiday Film Festival because, as I theorized at the beginning, I was guessing that it was a replacement for Friday Night Videos on November 30th of 1985. But, as I mentioned, it aired at 10 p.m. in primetime, the second annual Letterman Holiday Film Festival, on November 28th of 1986. And I'm going to give you the lineup courtesy of TV Tango. It was preceded by a new episode of the A-Team at 8, followed by a repeat of Miami Vice. And on CBS, you had a one-hour special called Alabama, My Homes in Alabama. And then at 9 on CBS, you had Dallas, and then a new episode of Falcon Crest at 10 p.m. And opposite on ABC, you had a special at 8 p.m. called The Kingdom Chums Little David's Adventure, a new episode of Starman at 9, and a special at 10 p.m. called Tears of Joy, Tears of Sorrow. In its time slot, the second annual Letterman Holiday Film Festival finished second at 14.1. Falcon Crest won the time slot with a 17.6 rating, and the APC special at 10 p.m. Tears of Joy, Tears of Sorrow did an 8.3 rating. Well, for two years in 1985 and 1986, a bunch of celebrities came together to present David Letterman with these things on TV. Now, I theorize that this is mostly complete out of all the segments that are out there on YouTube, but if 
something that we didn't find turns up either on the Letterman YouTube channel or elsewhere, we'll kind of include it maybe as a bonus, as a mini-sode down the line. But I theorize that these are all the segments we have, since the full specials themselves are not on YouTube. I know the second annual one used to be on YouTube, at least as of last year, but as far as I can tell, it's no longer on YouTube. I'm guessing maybe that channel had a copyright strike against it or something. Now let's go to Mike with This Week in Match Game Hollywood Squares Our History. It's time for This Week in Match Game Hollywood Squares Our History. This week is the first week of one of several theme weeks that were done throughout Match Game Hollywood Squares' run. This week is the famous, or maybe infamous, depending on how you look at it, Leave It to Beaver Week. And on Leave It to Beaver Week, you had that well-known guest star from Leave It to Beaver, Gallagher, but then you had seven regulars from Leave It to Beaver, Barbara Billingsley, Richard Deacon, in one of his last appearances before he passed away, because he died in 1984, Ken Osmond, Jerry Mathers, Frank Bank, Jerry Weil, and Rich Carell. We joke all the time about how memorable this week would have been if Gallagher smashed a watermelon on the Friday show and irritated Richard Deacon, but there's actually a little bit more that happened that week. One interesting thing is, during the match game part of the show, the celebrities had their real names on their podiums. But during the Hollywood Squares part, they had their character's name from Leave it to Beaver. Minus, obviously, Gallagher. And believe it or not, this week there are absolutely no head-to-head match wins. So this was like a real budget saver uh, for the show. So that's it for this week. We're going to enter 1984 next week with... A couple of our favorite celebrities, but also one of our favorite contestants. We'll talk about that in the new year. Have a good new year, everybody. Well, that's going to do it for this episode. But remember, you can always go to our website over at It Was a Thing on TV, where you can listen to the 437 episodes that preceded this one. And we've got all sorts of great bonuses there, including minisodes, live shows, extended versions of previous episodes. We got everything. And remember, we are on all social media, including Instagram, Threads, and Mastodon over at It Was a Thing on TV, except for Facebook, where we are at It Was a Thing on TV podcast. And remember, if you want to follow us on Mastodon, search for us at It Was a Thing on TV at TVWatch.party. And remember to subscribe to the podcast wherever fine podcasts can be streamed either Apple, TuneIn Radio, iHeart, Audible, etc. And don't forget we are on YouTube where you can like and subscribe to our channel and don't forget to hit the notification bell on YouTube to be informed of all future uploads on our channel. Now I just want to share a note to our listeners at Place to Be Nation Pop. I know this is not going to affect you, the normal listeners of our Podbean feed, but in our next episode, which of course is our annual Year in Review, the 2023 Year in Review show, that is going to be the final Wednesday drop on Place to Be Nation Pop because starting with the next series of episodes following the 2023 Year in Review we're going to move our drop from Wednesdays to Fridays 
there's a reason for that. It's because the schedule was getting really difficult with real life and work and everything and Monday through Thursday in the YouTube channel along with the Wednesday drop on top of that and we've always been a week behind on Place to Be Nation and we've never been up to date and I kind of used that at the beginning when we caught up to episode 59 to be a week behind to add some more extra things but I've been doing that in a long time so I figured you know what might as well be best to be in sync and also when we tape the episodes to when they get dropped on Place to Be Nation Pop, they're like 12 days apart. So at least if they're a week apart, they'll kind of be in sync and current to what's going on or what has been going on. So that'll help. So just to let you know, if you're listening on Place to Be Nation Pop, after the year in review show, new episodes and drops will be on Friday on Place to Be Nation Pop. If you're listening to us on our Podbeat feed, Nothing changes, Monday through Thursday, it's all good. But folks, get ready, because we have the year in review of 2023, and we will close out the year as only me, Mike, and Chico can, in our next installment of It Was a Thing on TV as we end 2023. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you with the year in review coming up later this week. Row! There's another part of the tradition which I love. And yes. to me, this is the best, single best TV story ever told sure. by a celebrity on TV. Well, of course. <laughs> I think you're supposed to applaud now, you idiots. Well, oh, my God. I don't know. What? I wouldn't, I wouldn't antagonize the audience now <laughs> after what we've just lived through. <laughs> All right. Ready? Oh, yes, I am ready. <laughs> I lived in Charlotte, North Carolina when I was a disc jockey. Yeah. And I used to open uh, uh, Dodge dealerships uh, with the Lone Ranger. I would go around and open Dodge dealerships. Now, when you say the Lone Ranger, it was the real Clayton guy. Moore, the Clayton actual Moore. Clayton Moore. He took it very seriously. He was very stoic. Uh, we would go. Uh, he had the guns. He had the, the sky blue outfit. He had the hat. He had the mask. He had the whole thing. Mm -hmm. and, and, and we would stand. He wouldn't tell us many things. Once I asked him if Tonto really meant stupid in Spanish, and that's why they call the Indian Tonto. <laughs> And did Kimosabi mean kiss my ass in Navajo? Yeah. You want to say? Yeah. So took it very seriously. Very seriously. Always met, dressed. Met as the children. He was else, the right. Lone Ranger. I was a long-haired guy. My friend Mike Martin and I would go behind the dumpster during the appearance, and we would get all herbed up. Right. And we would <laughs> continue to be herbed up as the appearance went. As the appearance went. So as the appearance drew to a close, we were not sure where we were or what planet we were on or what, what we were doing or who anybody was. And, and we didn't even know what car dealership we were at after a while. Mm -hmm. So I was just about to get my old beat-up Volvo to right. go home, and, it, and, and they didn't have a ride for the Lone Ranger to get back to the Red Roof Inn, uh, which was on Moorhead Boulevard. So he turns to us and he said, could you, someone give me, I said, we'll give you a ride back. Right. So we put him in my old beat-up Volvo, and he sits in the back, and he's the Lone Ranger. Got the mask. He got the mask everything. and the hat and the right. whole thing, and he had to, like, hold his guns to get into the car, you know, and he sits in the back of the car like this, and Mike and I are trying not to act stoned. So we're like... <laughs> We're going about, you know, four miles an hour down, you know. <laughs> We're not saying a word. We stop. It's, you know, 5 o'clock traffic. 
this middle-aged guy in a Buick in front of us, he, he stopped, and all of a sudden he wants to get out of the traffic. He backs into the car. I can hear my headlight crash. And he pulls away, and he, and he runs away. And I go, my God, he busted my car up. Uh, uh. So I, I, we got to catch it. So I pull out in my Volvo, and I begin to chase him. He got five cylinders. I'm chasing him, you know. And in the back, the Lone Ranger is just in the back like this, <laughs> stoic, not saying a word, just in the back like that, just like that. We chase this guy in the Buick, and we, we, we pull in front of him like that, and Mike and I both jump out, and we go, hey, man, yeah. you crashed into our car back there. He says, I did not. I said, yes, you did. So Mike gets out, he goes, yes, you did, man. So we're all saying that to him, and he says, well, really, why don't you call the cops? Who do you think they're going to believe, me or you two hippie freaks? And the Lone Ranger gets out of the car. <laughs> says, they'll believe me, citizen. <laughs> and the guy says, I didn't know it was you. Didn't know. Didn't know it was you. you.